When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. Thank you for coming back for more. Today we have section 67 through 70. I love these revelations. Uh, not so much because of deep doctrine. We'll save some of that for a couple of weeks from now when we hit, hit section 76 especially. But because of the period of church history that we're dealing with and the decisions that the, the brethren, Joseph Smith and other leaders of the church at the time are making, specifically regarding what we've been spending all this time in so far this year, the Doctrine and Covenants. In some ways, today's lesson is, oh, you could call it a meta-message, a message about the message. Now, this is scripture about scripture. And if you haven't guessed already, that's one of my favorite subjects. In fact, when I taught seminary years ago, the first six years of my career, I taught seminary and absolutely loved it. Teenagers are amazing. I totally agree with what President uh, Packer used to say, that the only problem with teenagers today is that there aren't enough of them. Yeah, so keep having kids, keep sending them our way for seminary and eventually for institute. Yeah, but I remember early, it was, I was beginning my career. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I, I still don't. But I did know the importance of establishing the scriptures at the center of my students' lives. I figured if I could do that, that was my one priority. Help them fall in love with the scriptures. And the rest would take care of itself. I love the beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The ultimate goal is to become one with our Father in heaven, to be with God and to become more like God. And in the beginning, John says, is the Word. Now that Word is Christ in that context, but the Word, it's one of my favorite name titles for Jesus. He has, he has dozens, over a hundred, but that, it remains one of my favorites because I love spending time in the Word. It introduces me to Jesus. And I knew that would happen for my students if they got introduced sufficiently to the Word on the page. So my first week of every single seminary semester was a little bit unorthodox. I was always behind schedule after the first week. Don't worry, I caught up. But my philosophy at the time, and still to this day, was you can't teach people until you've trained them. And so that first week, I would do a lot of things to try to train them on, on what to do with the scriptures once they opened them. And it made a huge difference. Yeah, like I said, not only did we catch up with the curriculum, but more importantly, the students caught fire when it came to Scripture. They were falling in love with the Word of God. And I was falling in love with the experience. In fact, during that first week, I always do uh, two object lessons with them. Let me back up. Uh, I was teaching a class, actually, <laughs> I guess back forward. This happened a little later. Uh, but I was teaching a class, an institute class, uh, about the presidents of the church. And I was going to be teaching a class on President Joseph Fielding Smith. And one of my favorite things about him was how scriptural he was. He was a scriptorian extraordinaire. I think he'd read the Book of Mormon like twice by the time he was 10 years old. Uh, he, would, he would read the, a pocket-sized copy of the New Testament as, as he walked to work uh, in, the, in the morning. 
And then when he walked home, if it was too dark to see, he would just review scriptures that he was trying to memorize on his way home. Well, I happened to be uh, in, a, in a master's class at BYU at the time, uh, and, he, and Joseph Fielding Smith's grandson, Joseph Fielding McConkie, in fact, the, the whole name, Joseph Fielding, there's connected to Joseph Fielding Smith, and McConkie, his dad was Bruce R. McConkie. Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith were two of the greatest uh, scriptorians ever. And so their son slash grandson, Joseph Fielding McConkie, amazing scriptorian too. I figured, well, this is all part of the family tree. I asked him, I have to teach a class about your grandpa. And I want to focus, on, among other things, on his, on his love for and, and understanding of the Word of God. How, how did he do it? What, what insight can you give me? What, what was Grandpa's secret in coming to understand the Word of God so well? And Brother McConkie didn't have to think about it for a second. He just fired back with two words. And I'd give anything to remember what those two words were. But anyway, no, I'm kidding. I do know the two words. He said, it's consistency and intensity. That's it. My grandpa was consistent in his scripture study. He always did it. And he was intense in his scripture study. In fact, you could say that he was intensely consistent and consistently intense in the time that he gave God to understand God's word. And I was so grateful for that because it turns out the two object lessons that I had begun every single seminary semester with focused on consistency and intensity in our scripture study. For the consistency one, I would always bring a student. You had to kind of gauge them really uh, quickly early on because I needed one that was just weird enough that he would actually run with me on this, on this object lesson. And there, the Lord always provides. And so I'd, have a, I'd bring up a student and ask him if he knew how to brush his teeth. And of course he did. And I'd say, well, good, because I want you to train the rest of the class. And they're like, what? I, I'm assuming everyone else knows how to brush their teeth too. I'm like, well, yeah, in the normal way. But you see, it's such a waste of time to have to do it morning and night every day. If there was a way to just get it all done for the week, imagine all those little two-minute segments that, would, that you'd save over the course of the time. And so we're going to practice. Uh, and, and I'd start putting toothpaste onto the toothbrush, but I would put 14 uh, rations on it. Like here's Monday morning and then Monday after, uh, not Monday night, and then Tuesday morning and Tuesday night and Wednesday morning and Wednesday night. And this thing was a big blob of toothpaste by the time it was done. Uh, everybody said, go for it. And he would stick that, it was always a he, uh, it, was, it was the guys that were weird enough to do this. Uh, and, and he'd stick this glob of toothpaste in his mouth, I mean barely enough for the brush to fit, right? And, and, and start brushing and gagging and blue foam coming out of his mouth. It looked like a Smurf with rabies. But it was always funny to just see the reaction of the students and I wanted it to be graphic enough that it would stick in their heads. And the point I was trying to make, which they all uh, completely understood, was that you can't, you can't accomplish a week's worth of toothbrushing in a, in a day, in a moment. It, does, it doesn't work to put 14 uh, rations of, of toothpaste on and brush because you need them consistently. Your teeth are going to get dirty again. You can't, you can't make up for it after the fact. Although we always seem to try on the day that we go to the dentist. Am I right? And so the point I was trying to make, which they understood, was we have to read our scriptures every single day. I used to have students that would laugh and tell me later, it's like, man, I'm haunted by that lesson. Yeah, every time I go brush my teeth, I remember, I've got to go read my scriptures. In fact, one student laughed. He said, it was so weird. Last night I was reading my scriptures and all of a sudden I was like, I got to go brush my teeth. And I laughed. I'm like, see, the Lord and your dentist love this object lesson. Connect the two. Uh, and some would even laugh and go, Brother Halverson, you haunt me. 
at night when I'm trying to go to sleep, sometimes if I haven't read my scriptures, I just see your face kind of floating over me with the toothbrush telling me to read my scriptures every day. And I laughed. I said, good. I'll see you tonight. That to me, there's just something about that consistency that allows the Word of God to work its wonders within us. Now, the intensity side, I'd bring up another student. This one didn't have to be so weird, but it had to be kind of a buff football player often. And I'd bring them up, and I'd have an orange, and I'd ask them to squeeze every last drop of juice they could out of it with their bare hands. I mean, the, the competitive nature of these boys would come out, and they would just squeeze until the juice was dripping off their elbows. Uh, I mean, there was, I mean, the front row was getting shrapnel wounds, right, with, little, with, with drops of juice or, or chunks of orange. It, it was a mess all over the, uh, the, front, the front table. And the point I was trying to make was the amount of effort you put in is what determines the amount of juice that you get out. And that became this idea of, of squeezing the juice and, or juicing the scriptures for all they were worth. Is there more that we could find in that chapter or in that verse or in that word? Hopefully you've gotten a sense as we've studied these revelations this year and the Book of Mormon last year to see that that's, that's my goal. My hope is to squeeze everything we can out of these. In fact, looking back over those six years of teaching seminary, and meeting just hundreds of incredible young adults, teenagers, and watching the change that the scriptures wrought in their lives, I'm rem reminded of, of two gifts that I received. So many of these teenagers were so generous and just trying to offer their thanks for the, the impact that the scriptures had, had had in their lives. But two gifts that stand out in terms of consistency and intensity in our scripture study. One young man, I can't remember if we picked on him to do it, but he was definitely weird enough to, uh, to brush his teeth in front of the class. I loved this guy. Uh, he gave me a tie, and it was a tie that was kind of three-dimensional because it had a toothbrush on it with what looked like a literal glob of toothpaste. That was the 3D part, some kind of plastic thing that pinned through the back. But, but it, was, it, was, it was our lesson that I could wear around my neck, a toothbrush, toothpaste tie. It was awesome. And another, this was an amazing one, where, uh, where a student, I, it was the end of the semester, I came back, the students all left, and I went into my office uh, just to kind of, ah, uh, okay, we did it. Uh, another crop of students ready to go on and take on the world. But there on my desk was a gift. Uh, and there was a note attached that said, Brother Halverson, I just wanted to thank you for this semester. This was the lesson that meant the most to me. And it was a painting of orange juice. A cup of orange juice, a little, an orange wedge there on the side, but it, within each of the segments of the orange, it was scripture. And little scriptural texts were floating in the orange juice. I, I consider that painting a masterpiece. I have hung it in every office I've had as I've gone around the, the country on different assignments for church education. In fact, fun sequel to the story, the student who painted it for me did not sign their name. And for... I don't know, 15 years, I was just like, ah, I wish I knew who had done this. It was an amazing example of anonymous giving. But years later, like I said, like a decade and a half after the fact, I was teaching a class at the Institute on scripture study. And I was trying to explain consistency and intensity. College students are a little less likely to be uh, to, to do the, the, those kinds of crazy object lessons in, in front of people. So I would just tell the story of the object lessons that I did in seminary. And the, the college kids got the point. But I had that painting on display, and I was telling the story of it. Well, 
little did I realize, but there in the in the uh, in the uh, in the classroom, we were in the chapel. Uh, tons of wonderful young adults coming to class, and a, vi a visitor had come, an old seminary student of mine that I hadn't seen in in 15 years or so. She just happened to be in town, happened to hear that I was teaching a class that night, and so she just came so we could catch up. Well, the miracle, as I unveiled the painting and told the story, is this old student of mine just broke out into tears. And I was like, huh, I guess she remembers those days and, and is touched by them. Well, it was a lot more than that, because after class, she came up to me and said, Brother Halverson, that's my painting. I painted it, and I, and I can't believe you kept it. And I was like, what? I can't believe you didn't sign it. Of course I was going to keep it. I love this. Uh, you, yeah, you have any idea how many people I've shown this painting to? Everywhere I've gone, I've tried to train people on scripture study and the intensity that ought to go into it. And your painting is, is exhibit A. There are thousands of orange squeezers, of scripture juicers all around the country, now all around the world, because of this gift that you gave me to help us visualize what we're trying to accomplish as we take God's word and just start squeezing until the truth begins to drip down our elbows. Thank you so much for that gift. And honestly, we both just got in tears, thanked God that he had set up this beautiful tender mercy, that the week I happened to be teaching that was the, the one in a million chance that she would actually be in town and want to come to class post-institute age. This is just amazing. So with all of that in mind, we're going to study in the Doctrine and Covenants about the Doctrine and Covenants. Now it's not called the Doctrine and Covenants yet. That's going to have to wait till 1835. Now it's still going to be the Book of Commandments because that's how they referred to all of these revelations. I mean, now they're called Section 67 or Section 68. Back when it, they were originally written, it was Commandment at one or commandment 20 or whatever. That's what they called them. That's how they, that's how they viewed them, which to me is so moving that, oh, it's just not something that God said. It's just a revelation. It's a great word in and of itself, but a commandment, there's an expectation here that I'm responsible for. I'm accountable to. Will I act upon these things? No wonder someone even them begin with something like hearken, which is open your ear, but be ready to act on the commandment that I give. Well, by the time you get to section 67, or commandment, whatever number they would have called it. Uh, they had, again, around 60 sections, revelations that had been given. But the question was, what do we do with them all? I mean, Joseph would dictate them and a scribe would write them. John Whitmer particularly was the one that would copy them all down into, into a book. But saints in general didn't have them. In fact, the last couple of weeks, do you remember seeing that there were times where, well, he, here I am receiving revelations in Missouri. Well, we got to share these with the people back in Kirtland. And so he comes back and reads them, and they're like, whoa, that's the center place. I want to get up and go. Or when he told Sidney Gilbert, well, you're here in Ohio. You've been here to, re to hear these revelations. Make sure that the things that you've seen and heard here, you take with you when you go back to Missouri. So that's, that's one issue. By now, late 1831, it's a, it's a conference of, of elders of the church in November of 1831, and they're talking about this. And that's one uh, element in, that they have in mind of, we've got two gathering places now. And so that's, that's hard. I mean, how do we get the word to both places? Especially since Joseph Smith can physically only be in one of them at a time. And so that was one thought. Well, what if we took the revelations that have been given? I mean, people want them. They're, they're copying them down, passing around the text, uh, making personal copies, whatever. They want these things. I mean, God is speaking anew 
in this final dispensation. I mean, if that's not newsworthy, I don't know what is. So they want copies. They're, they're in two different spots. And so if we publish them, then the book can be, can be in all kinds of places simultaneously, even though the prophet can't be. So that's one issue. A second issue is, if you remember when Joseph returned to Kirtland, there's some, some dissension in the ranks. There's some apostasy there. And so another part of the, the thinking behind this was people need the word of God. In fact, if they struggle outside of Joseph's presence, then, then perhaps having the presence of the word that God revealed through Joseph will be a help to them. And for those that are apostatizing and struggling with Joseph's leadership, perhaps a reminder of Joseph's prophetic gifts, that he is prophet, seer, and revelator, that, that they'll understand and, and remember that God still trusts Joseph, even if you're struggling with some things. If you see his imperfections, his humanity, which... Granted, admittedly, was on display. Remember, we saw that last week, that Joseph, you've sinned. Nevertheless, I forgive those who repent, and you're good at repenting. You've had a lifetime of practice with it. We all have. But for them to understand that the Lord looks at Joseph and sees a worthy vessel into whom he can pour his truth. And that's not just for church members, because there's a third element here. So not just the apostasy within the church, but there is increasing opposition from outside the church. Remember Ezra Booth, essentially the premier anti-Mormon. Uh, he's the one that's come back from Missouri with a negative report, not just of the land, but of Joseph himself. And he's inventing things and digging up dirt and planting seeds of doubt wherever he can. And these Ezra Booth letters are starting to, starting to go forth, uh, souring the water, so to speak. And so that's a third thought behind the, the canonization of the Book of Commandments, soon to be the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, if people are going to be out reading things about Joseph Smith, better to have them reading things from Joseph Smith. And let them judge for themselves. By their fruits ye shall know them. Well, here are the scriptural fruits of Joseph Smith. In some ways, even more so than the Book of Mormon. Because the Book of Mormon was already written. Joseph's role there was to translate it by the gift and power of God. But there seems to be something about, about the passage of time that makes it easier to trust the ancients. I've said this before, we always seem to be one dispensation uh, after, behind, after the fact. By the time it was Moses' day, people are like, no, we, we trust Abraham, but not you, Moses. But by the time Jesus came along, it was like, no, we don't trust you, Jesus, but we trust Moses. And then by the time we get to the latter days, it's like, no, we don't trust you, Joseph, but we know Jesus is the Christ. When will we finally catch up and have faith in the prophets God has placed right in front of us? Well, the Doctrine and Covenants was going to give them a chance to, to test that, because it's not just uh, Nephi and Lehi. It's not just Mormon and Alma. It's Joseph Smith, who's not just translating ancient scripture, but revealing anew scripture for our day. And so in this November 1831 conference, they get together and discuss these things and end up voting to publish 10,000 copies. Now that's confidence. There's not 10,000 members of the church at that time. Far from it. So this is a matter of this is going to be for the world. And in fact, that's exactly what the Lord says. It's at this conference that section 1 is received and section 133 is received. They didn't know it would be section 133, but one, they knew it was going to be the first one, the Lord's preface. We studied that our very first week. If you haven't seen that one yet, go back and rewatch section one, because section one is given at this same conference. Section 67, which we'll study today, has basically the same historical background as section one, which sets the stage for the entire thing. You see, when they, they were wondering, do we publish this? 
well, yeah, two church gathering places, a need for for prophets' words to be in both spots to to uh, combat uh, apostasy within the church and opposition outside the church. Yes, let's publish this. In fact, we should, well, let's pray about it, make sure the Lord wants us to. And, but let's write a preface to this book of commandments that we'll give. And they wrote it, and William E. McClellan, whom we let, let, met last week, said years later that, man, we were, tried to write a preface, but ended up picking it apart like crazy. We just couldn't uh, agree on what it should say. So that's when the Lord steps in and says, oh, you want a preface? I'll give you one. And the Doctrine and Covenants is the only book of Scripture there is with a divinely written preface uh, to, to set out the stage for it. That's section one. And section 133, or what would become section 133, is the appendix to the Doctrine and Covenants. Section one and section 133 have so many similarities. It's amazing to study those two together. And they're coming out in this time period where we, when we get section 67. So that's the historical background behind what we're studying today. And in a way, behind what we've been studying all year long. This is the, the Book of Commandments. This is the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, on the one hand, it seems like, well, yeah, duh, go ahead and do it. These revelations are coming. Go publish them and send them to the world. I mean, there's a lot more than 10,000 copies now. By the way, uh, they, were, they had more faith than, than the reality would allow, which, which is a good problem. Uh, remember the side mirror. Objects are, are further away than they, than they actually appear. There was no way originally that they could pull off 10,000 copies, especially with the kind of opposition they faced in Missouri. The destruction of the printing press, the tarring and feathering of Edward Partridge, the beautiful story of the girls that run out and start uh, gathering pages of, of, the, of the Book of Commandments and go hide in the cornfield. Yes, that, that kind of opposition took a dent out of the number of copies that there would be. Eventually it went, went from 10,000, well, let's print 3,000. But like I said, there, there's an innumerable number of copies that have been printed now. And so we kind of take it for granted that, of course, Joseph's going to canonize and, and publish the revelations that he receives. But that was, that was a question mark. And not just for the reasons that we're going to see today in section 67. To repeat something I taught back in that section 1 video, just very briefly. The idea of canonizing something is, is I, I, I call it stages of canonization. Uh, throughout history, people have, scholars have tried to, to come up with criteria for canonization. And they typically, there's, depending on who you ask, there's different numbers, but they typically come down to four. Number one, apostolicity, fun word to say. Did it come from an apostle? Can we trust the source? Second, orthodoxy. Does it agree with other scripture that we already know is true? Third is Catholicity. And Catholic doesn't mean Catholic Church with like a capital C. Catholicity, lowercase c, simply means universality. The Catholic Church was, is supposed to mean the universal church. Okay? So Catholicity means, well, is this scripture meant for everybody? Because perhaps this is just individual revelation instead of institutional revelation. We've talked about that set of contraries uh, frequently throughout this year. And then the fourth thing is traditional use. Because if Catholicity expands the scope in terms of space, it's not just for its immediate audience of one or two or whatever, it's for the whole Catholic uh, universal church. The traditional use one expands its reach uh, by way of, of, of time. In other words, it doesn't just resonate with its immediate generation, but subsequent generations also look back at that scripture and say, wow, it's continuing to speak to me. It's still answering the questions of my day, not just the questions of the day where, in which it was written. So that's why we still study the Bible thousands of years after the fact. That's why we still find resonance and relevance in the Book of Mormon. And that's the question for them. 
Well, it, will the Doctrine and Covenants outlive, will it have a long shelf life and outlive its origin? Now, as I've taken and, and pondered and studied those four criteria for canonization, I've realized that in a way there are stages of canonization. And to me, it's the Doctrine, the Doctrine and Covenants in church history is the best place to watch the stages unfold. Because with every other book of scripture, it's like, it's again, past tense. It's already done. Of course, it's canon. First stage is the revelation stage where it goes from God to prophet. And it's like, well, is that truly from God and is it truly to a prophet? That's the criteria, uh, criterion of, of, of apostolicity. And for Joseph Smith, it's like, is God speaking to Joseph? And as people are gaining a testimony of his prophetic role, then his words pass the test of apostolicity. The stage of revelation has taken place, God to his human servant. But again, that's typically in the servant's mind and heart, or in their mouth, and they're speaking it. Going from spoken word to written word, that's the stage of revelation to Scripture. See, it's one thing to be in the moment and to hear something, but to write it down, then all of a sudden it changes the dynamics of the, of the learning process. I mean, you can pour over every word, and, and that's good because you can really study it and internalize it and memorize it and so on, but also negatively, you might end up making the scriptures an offender for a word. I mean, the permanence of something, it's, I've worried about that when it comes to making these videos. There's a permanence here that's far beyond what happens in my institute class, where they're there for an hour or an hour and a half, and we have this amazing experience, and then they're, they're off on their merry way. And they can't, like, did he, what exactly did he say there? And did he mean that word? There, there are times I recognize my own imperfections. What, every week, basically, uh, when I'm filming and then editing these, these videos. I'm like, ah, that's permanent, and I messed up there. Uh, well, it wasn't false doctrine. Thank you for being understanding with my, with my humanity. But again, the permanence, that's a tricky thing. But to go from revelation to text, from word to scripture, that stage of authorization, that stage of canonicity, is where you can really test the orthodoxy and the catholicity criteria. Is it orthodox? It's written down now. Can we tell if that these that it's all one uh, one great whole? Does it fit? Has it changed the shape of the canon or just increased its density? Can these prophets get along? Do they agree with one another? And catholicity, now that it's in print form, it can go out and cover more geographic space. Just like we said, Joseph can't be in both church headquarters, okay? Two gathering places, well, it, we're going to have to test the Catholicity of these words. We're going to put them in print so they can be in both locations. And if that's spreading over uh, space, then now it's our turn. Will it spread over time? None of us live in November of 1831. And are we still finding relevance to this? This is now the criterion of traditional use. And it's the final stage in that, those stages of authorization from God to human prophet, then from spoken word to written text, and then from written text to living, ongoing community. It's now on us. And we're going to see some of that, that shared responsibility in the revelations that we're going to see today. What do we make of it? Do we still find relevance in the words that were written almost two centuries ago? And if there's one responsibility I feel as a gospel teacher, it's to help a, a rising generation find continuing relevance in, in ancient or early American scripture. Because I want that criterion of traditional use to hold. I do believe that Joseph was a prophet. 
that the first stage of authorization is, is in place. I do believe these spoken words were, were worthy of being written down so that I can pour over every punctuation mark. And I, and, and I do believe, and I'm grateful for, and honestly humbled by this shift of authority from text to community, that we have a responsibility to continue to breathe life and meaning into these words. I pray that it happens every week for you, that as we open these words, our eyes end up being opened by the Spirit to see, wow, that still speaks to me across a gap of space and time. I testify of the Scripture's truthfulness and timeliness and timelessness. And in fact, I'm not the only, ones to t the only one to testify of this. At that conference, when they finally decided, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to go through these stages of, of, of authorization. And, and it meets the criteria of canonization. We're going to canonize the, the Book of Commandments. They t gave a similar testimony. In fact, within their testimony, you can, you can see, they, I, I don't, this wouldn't have crossed their mind, but you can see the criteria of canonicity come forth. They praised and accepted and testified of the Doctrine and Covenants as, quote, the foundation of the church in these last days. That's orthodoxy. And a benefit to the world, that's Catholicity, showing that the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom of our Savior are again entrusted to man, that's apostolicity, and the riches of eternity are within the compass of those who are willing to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's traditional use. All year long as we've studied the Doctrine and Covenants, and today, as we study section 67 through 70, it's my prayer that we will feel that same thing, that God has given us the riches of eternity, and that if we choose to live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God, then that word, which is at the beginning of every powerful step forward in our discipleship, that word will bring us back to be with God and help us to become more like God. That's my prayer for today and every day. So section 67 verse 1. Behold and hearken, O ye elders of my church, who have assembled yourselves together, whose prayers I have heard, and whose hearts I know, and whose desires have come up before me. I love the combination of elements there. Your prayers, your hearts, your desires, in fact, true prayer ought to be all three of them. It's not just something you say, but it, is the desire really there? And is your heart in this? If it's just prayer without the other two, then it's not really prayer. But what's interesting, as we'll see in, in context of this revelation, the decision that the brethren need to make this, uh, at this conference is one that they're struggling with. And it's not just the prayer there. I mean, that's the, that's the initial thought is, do we, should we publish these things? And so, oh, well, let's pray about it. Okay. And the Lord is like, yes, I've heard your prayer. Should you, pray, uh, should you publish these things? I'll give you a quick answer. The answer is yes. But what's interesting is the Lord lets them know it's not just your prayers that I'm recognizing. It's your desires. And, and that can be both good or bad. I mean, what's, what, what's the purpose behind your prayer? In this case, what desires do you have regarding these revelations that you've received? And perhaps even more importantly, that middle one, whose hearts I know. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week, especially in section 64. For I, the Lord, require the hearts of the children of men. What, in, in some ways, go, go in this order. From prayer, back to desire, back to heart. 
Because if your prayers are what you say you want, then your desires are what you really want. And behind those desires is, is a heart that's letting you know why you really want what you really want. I love that the Lord is drilling back far beyond just the, the spoken petition. And that's true for each of us. When we pray, do we recognize the desire that's behind it? And do we recognize the heart that is behind the desire that's informing the prayer? We may not recognize it, but God certainly does. And the heart that God requires wasn't completely right among these brethren. And we'll see some of the things that were wrong with it in just a moment. In verse 2, Behold and lo, mine eyes are upon you, and the heavens and the earth are in mine hands, and the riches of eternity are mine to give. Now, it's one thing at the beginning there to say, I, I, I got my eye on you, to see your prayers and your desires in your heart. It's another thing to put it in big picture context of, you understand the heavens and earth are in my hand? You've got some questions about printing and publication and number of copies. That was their, their, their main kind of initial question. How many should we print? And it's like the Lord's like, can I step back and show you big picture? The heavens and earth are in mine hands. 3,000 copies, 10,000 copies. We're, eventually we're going to flood the earth with it. How we start may be beside the point. But especially that the ending, the riches of eternity are mine to give. Remember what they said about the scriptures when, the, when they finally agreed to move it all forward. That the riches of eternity were back within the compass, within the reach of us mortal men and women. I wonder if the Lord is hinting here, based on what he's about to chide them about, or chastise them for in a moment, if he's reminding them, do you understand these truths, these revelations, these riches of eternity? They're mine to give. Not yours to command. This is all about my divine will, not, not your human will that needs to be submitted. It's your heart that needs to be broken and offered to me. So don't think that you can approach these revelations as if they were completely within your command. You don't put God on speed dial or, or like he's your butler and go, another revelation, please. That, that, that's, not, that's not for you to, to decide. And they're about to have a, a literal experience with that in a moment. I just wonder if the Lord is kind of setting that up. The riches of eternity, namely the scriptures, the truths of God, are mine to give, not yours to demand. In verse 3, this is where the chastisement comes. Ye endeavored to believe that ye should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. We'll talk about what that blessing might be in a moment. But behold, verily I say unto you, there were fears in your hearts. And verily, this is the reason that ye did not receive. Now, speaking in general terms, what they were seeking was a confirmation, an absolute witness that the revelations of the doctrine of the book of commandments were true, that they came from God. Before they could sign off on Catholicity and traditional use, they had to know from God about apostolicity and orthodoxy. Do these revelations really agree with everything else we've known from God, from other scripture? And is Joseph really a prophet in terms of a revelator and not just a translator? We want to know for, for certain. And so they were praying for some kind of a manifestation of that fact. In fact, I might as well jump ahead and, and, and tell you in advance. By the time you get to about verse 10 through 14, the end of this revelation, 
the Lord seems to shift gears and he's talking about, I mean, parting the veil and seeing God. I mean, it's like, whoa. And, and I mean, this is more than a still small voice comforting and you're going, yes, this, this, this feels right to me. This, this is a divine manifestation. Now, among the church leaders at this time are still the three witnesses. We're going to be reminded of several of them in, in another re revelation later on. They're still engaged in the work, and they have had divine manifestations. I mean, Oliver Cowdery, restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood, restoration of the Melchizedek Priesthood, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris, the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, a divine manifestation, the angel Moroni, the voice of God. I mean, that's what they're hoping for and wanting for the Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, even the eight witnesses, it wasn't as miraculous as the three. It was more of the, the head version than the heart version. The natural more than the supernatural. But still, they got to see the plates. They got to heft them. I mean, there was an obvious confirmation that Joseph had, had plates. Well, they're wanting similar proof. Uh, perhaps to the level of a vision of the Lord himself. And in fact, it was just oh a week or so earlier that Joseph Smith had said that if the saints were to come together with one heart and one mind. Remember, those are the definitions of, of Zion. If you can come together with one heart and one mind in faith, in fact, the way he put it was in perfect faith, then the veil might as well be rent today or tomorrow or next week, any other time. I mean, it's only been a few days. Is that still ringing in the, in the brethren's mind of, we want the veil to part. We want to see the Lord so that personally he can testify to us. He, he can prove to us that these words are as true and as worthy of canonization as anything else he's ever given. That's what we want. But the interesting thing, again, back to verse 3, is they endeavored to believe that they could receive that blessing. They tried. But were they of one heart and one mind? We see, we'll see in this revelation that they weren't. There was some friction. And that static gets in the way of a clear communication. And did they have perfect faith? Well, they endeavored to believe. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Joseph Smith knew from James 1.5, but what's James 1.6? But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. That was the weak link in the chain for these church leaders. They wavered. In fact, the word in verse 3, they feared. They, there were fears in your hearts. And that's the reason you didn't receive this kind of manifestation. Now, that's an interesting one. It wasn't, it wasn't doubt so much as it was fear. Fear of, well, fear of being brought into the presence of God. Fear of the veil parting. Sounds a lot to me like, like Moses at, at, the, at Mount Sinai. We'll learn this later in section 84. It was Moses' goal not to be alone on the mountaintop. It's like, hey, there's room for everybody. Start climbing. But the people there at the base, especially when they saw the thunder and the lightning and the rumbling and just, whoa, that, that God's up there. Moses, why don't you go ahead and take care of things? We're fine. We're fine just to be here at this lower level. It's okay by us. And is it sometimes our fear of accountability? If we know more than we admit, is it fear of our humanity? when it's juxtaposed against his divinity and bringing out all the more clearly to us our imperfections? Is it simply a fear of God that is more actual <laughs> fear than reverence and awe? Well, all of that might have come together here, but their fear kept 
the Lord at bay. The same could be said for any of us. Now in verse 4, Now I, the Lord, give unto you a testimony of the truth of these commandments, which are lying before you. So this won't be a visible manifestation. I'm not going to come through the veil. You're, you're too afraid of that. But I will give you a testimony. That's actually really important for us to understand. We might not gain the testimony in the way that we had wanted or expected or hoped for, but it will come. For some, it is the glorious manifestation. That's the Kirtland Temple, which we'll see when we get to section 109 and 110. But there's also the version of the Nauvoo Temple, which lacked all of the visible manifestations in this Pentecostal outpouring of miraculous visions and so on. So interesting. We all want the Kirtland experience, but sometimes we get the Nauvoo experience. And to me, it's important that in the first two temples of this, of this dispensation, you get both extremes to help kind of establish the parameters that our testimonies will be somewhere in the middle here. And there will be times where the veil parts and other times where we don't see or hear anything, but we feel the presence of the Spirit of God confirming that this is God's work and God's will. That's what he's offering there in verse 4. I'll give you a testimony of the truth. These commandments are lying before you. That's going to be part of the, the proof is in the pudding. Read them. Study them. They will become their own evidence if you are open to the Holy Ghost. In verse 5, this is one of the other challenges. It's not just your fear of the Lord. It's also, in a way, your lack of faith in his servant. Your eyes have been upon my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. See, back in verse 2, mine eyes are upon you. Well, verse 5, where are your eyes? Your eyes are on Joseph. And here's what you've been looking for. His language you have known, and his imperfections you have known. And you've sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. This you also know. I mean, I, I know you didn't want to admit it. You certainly didn't want to admit it to Joseph Smith. That could be awkward. Well, he knows because I know and you know. So now we all know that, we, that, we, that each of us knows, okay? Can we get this out in the open? Remember back in verse 1, yeah, I've heard your prayers. You're like, oh, should we publish these? Sure, but what's going on? What's the desire behind it? And what's the heart behind that? Your heart, you've been seeking in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. Aren't there better ways to phrase this? I mean, Joseph, we love you. But your language? Yeah. And your imperfections. I mean, you just got called to repentance back in section 64. You and Bishop Partridge, there was some friction back in Missouri. You're not a perfect person. And Joseph would be first to, to admit that. In fact, first to canonize it, <laughs> to, to have his, his own imperfections forever preserved in Scripture. Ouch. But especially the language part, because now this is this shift of authorization. We believe in the first one, Joseph. And despite your imperfections, we see the divinity poking out from behind your humanity. It's actually a wonder to behold. Uh, an uneducated farm boy, but God speaks through you. We know that. We feel it when you speak. But when you write, yeah, you're, you're, what we see then is your lack of polished education. And that can come from somebody like an Oliver Cowdery, who was a school teacher, or a Sidney Rigdon, who was an eloquent preacher for years. William McClellan, who's more educated than, than Brother Joseph is. I mean, almost anybody in that first, uh, especially among the leaders of the church, that first generation, had more education than Joseph. But that's part of the question. 
Is it education or authorization that matters? Which is the greater mantle? A scholar's cap and gown? What Hugh Nibley called the robes of the apostate priesthood? <laughs> or the true priesthood and the robes of righteousness that go along with it? Which was Joseph supposed to be wearing? Well, the, the robes of, of education and, and academia never seemed to fit on Joseph very well. He, he was conscious of that and at times self-conscious of that. Experiences like this I'm surely, surely didn't help. And he learned as much as he could. Nobody worked harder in the School of the Prophets to learn Hebrew, for example, than Joseph Smith. And in fact, he and Orson Pratt, who was basically a genius, uh, the two of them did better on, on, uh, the, on Hebrew study than just about anybody else. He wanted to learn. He wanted to master other languages. He wanted to master the English language, which he sometimes complained about as a, as a broken prison. Ah, how do I escape from this? I'm trapped by words that I, that I don't know. I'm trapped by a vision of eternity that isn't confined to human language. But to translate that, I mean, forget Reformed Egyptian to English. That was easy, I had, or easier. I had a Urim and Thummim. I had a seer stone. But translating divine impression into actual language, especially the written kind, oh, you can be an offender for a word. That, in fact, I've said this before, was the way most people tried to tear down the Book of Mormon when it first came forth. Hardly anybody read it enough to get into its doctrine, its theology, its, its history. They just heard the stories and, and thought it was unbelievable, an angel and gold plates, are you, are you kidding me? And if they did crack the book open, they, were, they stumbled over its unpolished language. Some made fun of Joseph Smith and even made fun of the angel Moroni that they didn't believe in, saying, well, the angel may have known good reformed Egyptian, but he didn't have a clue when it came to English. Joseph may have had a, a gold Bible, but he could have used Webster's Dictionary. I mean, that came out just two years before the Book of Mormon did. He could have used some of that. And they mocked the, the spelling or the punctuation or the grammar of the Book of Mormon in its first edition. Well, the, the saints here, the leaders of the church, are super concerned. That's part of their fear. Not just fear of gaining a testimony, but fear of other people not gaining a testimony. Because they're going to trip up over the language of these revelations. Section 1. That preface that was received at the same time, what's the Lord say? I speak unto men according to their language, that they may come to an understanding. I have to condescend verbally, just like I condescended physically. I've been teaching the sunbeams with my wife. It's an amazing calling. I love three-year-olds. It's my favorite age. Uh, but to, it's definitely a, a lowered translation of how do I take concepts of the Doctrine and Covenants? How do I take divine truth and reduce it to a three-year-old level. Well, the riches of eternity that are God's to give, not ours to command, well, in what form will he give them? Whatever form we can understand. Now, can Joseph's language be polished? Yes, he knew that and admitted it and worked on it. In fact, there was some editing that was going on on these revelations, even after this particular section came. And Joseph used Oliver Cowdery and Sidney Rigdon as helpers in that. If there's a grammatical, if there's a word that, that, I, that is, could be, have been said better, or a grammatical construction, if the syntax is a little bit off, I, I don't want my weakness, my imperfection, to become a stumbling block for other people. 
but the bones are good. The revelation itself is true. God himself will give us a testimony of the truth of these commandments lying before us. That's what they're really after. And so the Lord gives them another option. If one is, have the veil part and have absolute knowledge, perfect conviction that this is God's word. Well, verse four, I'll give you another testimony of the truth. And here's one way it can come. Verse six, I call this the divine dare because God dares this assembly of church leaders to do something. Fine. You, your eye has been on Joseph. Well, my eye's on you. You recognize his imperfections. Well, do you recognize your own? You're worried about his language. Well, you do better. Seriously, I dare you. Verse 6, seek ye out of the book of commandments, even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you. And then in 7, if there be any among you that shall make one like unto it, then ye are justified in saying that ye do not know that they are true. I'm amazed at the, at the, the bravado on the part of God. Like, go for it. Do your best. In fact, uh, I can beat you with one arm tied behind my back. Uh, the, the equivalent. I'll give you the, I'll let you pick. It doesn't even have to be something as lofty as what we saw in section 38 or 43 or 45 or 18 or 19. I mean, I, I could go on. Uh, these masterpieces of revelation that we have spent the, the, the last six months studying. No, I'll let you pick. One of those throwaway sections that people seem to skip over in gospel doctrine, because we don't have time for that. Pick the least, the least among them. I'd be curious to know what, uh, what, which one they would have picked. I mean, admittedly, some chapters aren't as, as power-packed as, as others. And the Lord seems to admit this too, when he says, well, take the least among them. But even the so-called least can speak to our needs, can answer our prayers, can reveal the mind and will of God. And that's what we're really after. Not some kind of, of merely mortal eloquence. What conveys the power of God? What's real scripture? So here's the divine dare. Go for it. See if these words are merely mortal. Because as you write, you'll know that yours are merely mortal. And then you'll be able to juxtapose the two and discern. In fact... If we're taking the least of Joseph, which you consider the least among you as far as education is concerned, and take the greatest among you, intellectually speaking, and, and pull off your greatest effort, I'm trying to stack the deck in your favor. Go for it. Well, at this point, I would probably be like, um, never mind, I'm good. Uh, let, me, let me pray a little bit more about the Doctrine and Covenants and get a, get a testimony that way. But, <laughs> amazingly, William McClellan is like, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. According to Joseph's recollection, after the foregoing was received, this revelation, William E. McClellan, as the wisest man in his own estimation, having more learning than sense, that's a huge difference. Yes, he did, McClellan did have a lot of learning, not so much sense. Joseph, on the other hand, didn't have much learning, but had an incredible good sense, and more importantly, a great sense of the Spirit. Well, McClellan, having more learning than sense, endeavored to write a commandment like unto one of the least of the lords, but failed. So they tried the test, they took up the divine dare, and he couldn't pull it off. And then I love what Joseph said about 
what everybody began to realize, what he had long known, but what these other church leaders were beginning to, to realize. He said, it was an awful responsibility to write in the name of the Lord. He could have said, it's hard enough to speak in God's name. I imagine every Melchizedek priesthood holder can admit that. But to write it, to write it down, Joseph went on, the elders and all present that witnessed this vain attempt of a man to imitate the language of Jesus Christ renewed their faith in the fullness of the gospel and in the truth of the commandments and revelations which the Lord had given to the church through my instrumentality. Interesting, he calls it a vain attempt. Did he mean vain like it didn't work, it didn't happen? Or vain in terms of prideful? Well, it ended up being both. And I love how Joseph described his role at the end of that statement. This experience, this failed attempt, restored their faith in the revelations which the Lord had given the church through my instrumentality. My instrumentality, I'm just an instrument. And yeah, I might not be the sharpest tool in the shed as far as grammar is concerned. I'm sorry. But even as weak as an instrument as I might be, I'm the one the Lord picked up because starting at least by the time I was 14 years old, he saw in me somebody humble enough not to be vain, neither to be prideful, nor to be a failure in God's hands. I'm sorry for my inadequacy. I'm sorry for my weakness. Believe me, nobody sees it more than I do. My eyes are upon me. I know God's eyes are upon me. But he also sees amidst my weakness he sees his own strength and my willingness to tap into it, to rely upon it, instead of rely upon my own weak words. That's what we're getting at here. Who are you relying upon? And where is the source of strength? Does the power come from eloquence or from authority? Does it come from scholarship or does it flow from the Spirit of God? Could revelations be polished into better language? Sure. Can you write something that sounds a lot like something Jesus might say? In fact, it's interesting, Benjamin Franklin, uh, generations before, had written, there was actually a, a whole genre called pseudo-biblical literature. And there were all kinds of people during this time period that would write things and try to say it in the language of King James Scripture that everybody was familiar with. Franklin would always laugh because he, he, sometimes he called it Genesis 51, since Genesis only has 50 chapters. But he wrote a parable that sounds a whole lot like the Old Testament to try to teach a principle about religious tolerance. It's actually a great piece of pseudo-biblical literature, but it, but it ain't the Bible. It's actually some people who have left the church over what they consider Joseph's plagiarism in the Book of Mormon. And, so, and they find these other pieces of, they don't even, most of that I've read or come across, don't even know that there's a genre of, of pseudo-biblical literature out there. And so they stumble across, uh, for example, a book that describes the War of 1812 in King James language. And they're like, <gasps> see, it says, and it came to pass, uh, and the number of years and all these things. And it, oh, it sounds so much like the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith must have been using this to copy uh, into the Book of Mormon. And it's like, are you serious? Read the whole thing. When, when the first time somebody freaked out over that and sent me the, the little passage that the, the ex-Latter-day Saints had, had, had pushed out there, I thought, ooh, that does sound a lot like uh, Book of Mormon language. Sounds a lot like King, King James language. 
But as a fan of context, I figured, well, I better read the page that it's on instead of just what they cherry-picked and, and threw out there for shock and awe's sake. So I read the page, and I thought, oh, I might as well read the whole chapter. Oh, what the heck, just read the whole book. And when I read the whole book, I was just like, yeah, this is just another example of pseudo-biblical literature. It is not scripture, and it certainly was not the ur-text from which Joseph Smith plagiarized and invented from whole cloth the Book of Mormon. Are you kidding me? Because what spirit do those books breathe? And that's what we're after. Back in verse 4, I'll give you a testimony of the truth that can only come from me. Now, it may not have come in the, the visible manner, manner or manifestation that you might have been hoping for, that you might have been endeavoring to believe that you might receive. But what about the still small voice? What spirit does it breathe? Remember section 50? How do you teach these things? Is it by the spirit and power of God or some other way? Because if it's some other way, then it's not of God. And if that's the spirit by which you teach, then what's the spirit by which you receive? Is it by the same spirit? Is it by God? Because if it's not of God, then it's some other way. Will it, will it resonate? Are we tuned to the same frequency? Spirit of God and spirit of man or woman. That's how you're going to know. And even if you were able to write some piece of pseudo-biblical uh, material, even if you were to be able to, to craft some kind of, kind of Christ-sounding statement, would it breathe the same spirit? And would it do so across time and space so that it resonates generation after generation after generation? Now back to verse 7. If you can do it, then fine. You don't have to testify that they're true. You, you, you'd, be, you'd be justified in wondering. It's like, I can do just as well as Joseph. But, verse 8, if ye cannot make one like unto it, then ye are under condemnation if ye do not bear record that they are true. I mean, if it's a divine dare, you've got to put some skin in the game too. You're asking me to risk Joseph's reputation? To put, to put my money on it? Well, are you willing to risk your own? Are you willing to bear testimony that you know it's true once you realize that it's not mere mortal that's able to do this? Because you're a better mere mortal than Joseph is as far as your intellectualism is concerned. But how about your spirituality? This, for me, always goes back to Paul's powerful words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It is God's epistemological model epistemology. How do we know what we know? They're trying to come to know for sure that these are God's words and are worthy of scripture and canonization. Well, how do we know? And the way Paul said it to a bunch of Corinthian saints that are there in the shadow of academic Athens, it has to be by the power of God so that your faith doesn't stand in the wisdom of man. That's how I know that the Doctrine and Covenants is true. It's how I know the Book of Mormon is true. It's how I know the Bible is true. And often, often in my interfaith de uh, dealings with other people of other, other religions, when they're like, well, how do you know the Book of Mormon's true? I will sometimes respond, how do you know the Bible is? And I'm not doing that to call into question the Bible. Believe me, I love the Bible. But it's an interesting gut check for them. Like, wait a minute. Well, what do you mean, how do I know the Bible's true? It just is. It always has been. And it's like, well, it's circular reasoning. It's true because it's just, it's true. Uh, I believe the Bible because the, but the Bible tells me that it's true. Yeah. You have to have an independent source of testimony. Where's yours? Is it just cultural current? Is it just poll numbers? 
uh, because those poll numbers are sinking, unfortunately. How do you know the Bible's true? I do too. I know it's true as well. But I don't know it just because of tradition. I know it because I've studied it and I've prayed about it. And Moroni's promise, although it was given about the Book of Mormon, can apply across the board to any other scripture. And so I say to my Bible-believing friends, are you really Bible believers? Or are you Bible assumers? I say that with all respect. I'm so grateful for your testimony of the Bible. I just hope that it's rooted in the Spirit of God and not in proof texting or archaeology. That always gets me. When they're like, there's no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. And I always laugh and go, well, is that why you believe in the Bible? Because of archaeological evidence? You preachers, I've talked to ministers about this, do you preach archaeological sermons every week from the pulpit? Since that's how you know the Bible's true. No. Religious epistemology needs to be religious. It needs to be spiritual. Spirit to spirit, connecting me to God through his word. Even this is still just means to a greater end. Jesus is the one I'm trying to connect with. The words help me do it. And that's one of the reasons I believe in them so passionately. So back to section 67. You've got to bear record of these things. They do, and I'll share some of that in a moment. But look at verse 9. For ye know that there is no unrighteousness in them, and that which is righteous cometh down from above, from the Father of lights. We're now seeing another element of this epistemological model. How can you say that you know the Doctrine and Covenants is true if God isn't physically present to tell you? And from the opposite extreme, if it's not just that, I, oh, I couldn't pull it off, so man, Joseph must have some tricks up his sleeve. Even that's kind of weak. So what else can you know? Verse 4, you can know when I give you a testimony. And that's going to come from the Holy Ghost. And verse 9, by their fruits you shall know them. So what are the fruits of the Doctrine and Covenants? Restored or revealed scripture. There's no unrighteousness in them. And if it's righteous, it must come down from above, from the Father of lights. Is light coming forth from this? Again, back to section 50. If it doesn't edify, then it's not of God and is darkness. So the Father of light doesn't shine darkness down. The Father of lights shines light. So is this book light? Does it teach you unrighteousness? Or does it teach you righteousness? I mean, we see Moroni's criteria in Moroni 10, right? Uh, search these things. Study the Book of Mormon. Pray about Ponder it. Ponder if its message is true. Its message of the tender mercies of the Lord. And pray about it. And if you have real intent and faith in Christ, a sincere heart, it will come. God will manifest the truth of these things by the power of the Holy Ghost. By the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things, including the Doctrine and Covenants. That's the hint in four. But if that's Moroni's promise, Mormon has a different kind of promise a few chapters earlier. This is from Mor uh, Moroni chapter 7. Moroni's dad, Mormon, is writing here in a letter, and he talks to his son and all of us about how to judge if things come from God or not. Sound relevant to what the saints are going through there in section 67? And relevant to all of us? Mormon puts it this way. Wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God. You get that hint there in section 67, verse 9? There is no unrighteousness in them. If it's righteous, it comes from above. It comes from the Father of lights. That's what Mormon is trying to get across. All things which are good cometh of God. And that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. 
Hasn't the Doctrine and Covenants done that for you the last six months? Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge for everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Or as we see here, it's sent from the Father of lights. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge, it is of God. I love Mormon's epistemological model. I love it as applied to the Doctrine and Covenants that we've been studying this year. Honestly, ask yourself this, especially if we've been able to study it together, verse by verse, for the last 125 pages. Has it invited and enticed you to do good? Have these words introduced you to a loving Lord? Have they persuaded you to believe in Christ and to trust in him more fully? Has it increased within you the desire to, to love him and to serve him and to live like him? It has for me. It's one of the reasons that I love studying and, and teaching and living according to these words. Because they change me. I testify there is no unrighteousness in them. And because that, of that, among other reasons, I know that they come down from above, from the Father of lights. And these words truly enlighten me. Well, they enlightened these saints too. And so, number one, having failed the divine dare, and knowing that I'm going to be held responsible if I don't bear record now that I, I know in that way that they're true. Even better, verse 9, I know in that way that they're true. So yes, I will bear witness to the world. It will be different than, from the witness of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, different from the witness of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. But here are the witnesses of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Commandments. And they all sign their name to a statement affixed at the beginning of the Book of Commandments that they then sent out to the world. It said this, The testimony of the witnesses to the Book of the Lord's Commandments, which he gave to his church, through Joseph Smith, Jr., who was appointed by the voice of the church for this purpose. You get that? It was Joseph's instrumentality. These are the Lord's commandments. He gave them. Back to verse 2, the riches of eternity are mine to give. Yeah, they did come from him. The testimony continues. We therefore feel willing to bear testimony to all the world of mankind, to every creature upon the face of all the earth and upon the islands of the sea, Yep, that's Catholicity for you. That the Lord has borne record to our souls through the Holy Ghost shed forth upon us. See, that's Moroni's version. The ideal way for any of us to come to know spiritual truth. Through the Holy Ghost shed forth upon us that these commandments were given by inspiration of God. There's apostolicity for you. And are profitable for all men. There's Catholicity for you and traditional use, if we're willing to do it, and are verily true. There's orthodoxy. Of course we're going to canonize this. It meets all the criteria. We give this testimony unto the world, the Lord being our helper. You see, we don't want to rely on mere mortals ourselves either. The Lord is our helper, and it is through the grace of God, the Father, the Father of lights, and His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are permitted to have this privilege 
of bearing this testimony to the world, that the children of men may be profited thereby. Oh, it is a privilege to be permitted to bear testimony of these things. And I'm grateful for that privilege myself. I testify that the words of the Doctrine and Covenants are true. Not because of their eloquence, not because of their polish, although I see evidence of both on every page, but because of the Spirit of the Lord that breathes through these words. That was the promise back in section 18, remember? That if you read these words by my power and by my Spirit, then you will be able to testify that you have heard my voice and know that I am, that you'll know that these words are his. I am grateful to have that testimony and to have the privilege of receiving permission to bear it to you. And with that, we go back to that original, oh, the thing that they were endeavoring to believe in. Is the promise still there? Can the veil be parted? I mean, I can know about the truth of the Doctrine and Covenants by, by other means, other spiritually powerful means. But to part the veil and see God the way Joseph's been able to? Will I ever be able to climb Mount Sinai and, and see what Moses saw? Well, verse 10, Again, verily I say unto you that it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you, so here's our part, one, strip yourselves from jealousies and fears. And two, humble yourselves before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble. Then, here comes this promise, this privilege. Then the veil shall be rent, and you shall see me, and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither natural mind, but with the spiritual. I'm amazed by that promise. You want to do this? First, you're going to have to strip yourself. Now, strip yourself is such a fun verb. I talked about this last year in Alma chapter 5, because it's there when, when Alma asks the people of Zarahemla, have you been stripped of pride? And I told that horribly embarrassing story of the time when I was a little kid, and my dad threw me out of the swimming pool so fast, at my request. I just told him, Dad, throw, chuck me out. I just want to fly. And he threw me out so fast. We were at a hotel swimming pool, and I was little, that, that I emerged from the water with such force that my little swim trunks went... And they were still in the water as a little naked Jared, a little boy, was flying through the air, landed on the other side just yelling, Dad, throw me my, my, my swimsuit. So embarrassed. Okay? I was stripped of everything, especially my pride. I, I was humiliated, or I could say humility-ated. That's what happens when something gets stripped from you. And back then we talked about this difference between being stripped of pride, which seems like an outside source. God is the one that pants us, basically, rather than simply removing our pride because we realized that it was never something we were supposed to wear to begin with. Remember President Benson's words, God will have a humble people. You can either choose to be humble or you'll be compelled to be humble. Back to the, the, the stripping analogy, you can either take your pride off or God will strip you of it. Well, that's the same verb used here. Are you going to strip yourselves? He didn't say strip of pride, but he said of jealousy and fear. And guess what? Both of those are rooted in pride. I'm jealous of somebody else. I don't have what they have, but I want it. Well, that's my pride speaking. Or I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what other people will think. Well, that's still pride on my part too. 
might be pride from above or pride from below, but either way, it's pride. And you have to strip yourself from those kinds of things. Even your fear, part of it, like we saw in verse 3, was fear of being in God's presence. But what about just the fear of what people will think about these scriptures if we really do print them and, and send them forth? What if they're just not good enough? Because Joseph's language isn't good enough. And the Lord's like, I got this. Paul knew that. When I am weak, then am I strong. Moroni learned that. I'm afraid the Gentiles will mock because of things, these things. That, that they'll recognize the weakness in our writing. I mean, honestly, Ether 12 is so much like Section 67. It's just a, a more personal a kind of soul-searching on Moroni's part. I am not good enough. Joseph had, had, gone, had already gone through that kind of soul-searching early on in his ministry. Well, there it's Moroni's turn. And what's the Lord say? Fools mock, but they shall mourn. And my grace is sufficient for the meek. My grace will be sufficient for them. If people trip up over the language of Scripture, okay, I'm willing to work with them on that. Because guess what? They need to be stripped of their pride as well. And maybe by speaking through weak language and removing the possibility of placing trust in the arm of flesh or the arm of flash. We're going to strip that arm down so that all that's left to determine to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. That's how we're going to do this. You've got to strip yourself from jealousy and fear. You've got to humble yourself because you're not sufficiently humble. That's another thing that Alma asks in Alma 5. Have you been sufficiently humble? The, the humble part is hard enough to have that adjective, but to then force the adverb sufficiently? Oh, seriously? You mean it's not enough to be humble? I have to be humble enough? That's hard. How do I know when I've reached the, the minimum? Well, you'll know when the Spirit begins to speak to you. You'll know when righteousness comes from the Father of lights. That's when you know you're sufficiently humble. And ultimately, how will you know? Because the veil will part. The veil that separates God from humanity. I love that he calls it a veil rather than a wall. Ask any bride who's worn a veil. They're supposed to be thin. In fact, they're supposed to be almost transparent. And the word God uses to describe what separates him from us is veil. But we typically control just how thin or how thick it ends up being. No wonder uh, Moroni says, to rend the veil of unbelief. You see, when Jesus was crucified and the veil of the temple, which literally separates the presence of the priests from the presence of God, the holy place from the holy of holies, when that veil was rent in twain, it said it was rent from the top to the bottom. In amazing detail. That is, this isn't us forcing our way into God's presence. This isn't some coup. <laughs> this is God from above, heaven, Father of lights, rending the veil, ripping it downward, saying, I want you to come in to my presence. That's what the crucifixion of Christ accomplished. But if the veil of separation starts opening from the top, the veil of unbelief starts opening from the bottom. That's the one that we rend in twain. So that then, eventually, in God's own time and in God's own way, then he can rend the veil of separation. We get rid of our unbelief. God will get rid of our ignorance.
Now, verse 11, for no man has seen God at any time in the flesh, except quickened by the Spirit of God. Quickened doesn't mean to be made faster. It means to be made alive. Spiritually speaking, to be quickened by the Spirit of God. Remember Moses chapter 1, where Moses had to be transfigured in a way to be able to endure the presence of God. The transfiguration, at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John see the Lord transfigured. There's a difference here. If you picture a mountain climber and they have to acclimatize, there, there's a, an adjustment to the elevation that their body has to, to undergo or they won't be able to survive the, the conditions at, at, the, at the top of the mountain. Or picture scuba divers. That's instead of going up, now let's go down. And the water pressure. My son was learning to scuba dive and he was just talking about just how, how scary it was. They, they kind of they put the, the fear of God into you, or at least the fear of water pressure. Uh, that as you come up, you've got to be breathing out. You've got to do it slowly uh, because your body has to be able to gradually adjust to the kind of conditions that it's in. Well, here the Lord is asking all these people and us to get into spiritual shape. We don't want altitude sickness. We don't want the bends, spiritually speaking. We need to be quickened by the Spirit of God in order to be able to see God in all His glory. Verse 12, Neither can any natural man abide the presence of God, neither after the carnal mind. So as neither natural men nor natural minds that can abide God's presence. I'm interested about that carnal mind statement. Just like he mentioned carnal and natural mind back in verse 10. The mind as opposed to the heart. A purely rational epistemology rather than a truly spiritual one. And what were these church leaders struggling with? And what did the Lord kind of force them into? Fine, you want to do it a purely rational way? Then you try to write scripture. And you try to breathe life into it. You try to quicken it by anything less than the Spirit of God. And no wonder your efforts will be vain and they will fail. Because it's not the natural man nor the natural mind that can tap into the power of God, let alone produce things that have God's power. I've wondered sometimes, what would it be like for, again, to climb the mountaintop without getting used to the altitude or, or go down into the depth scuba diving and never get used to the water pressure? Imagine a natural mind entering the presence of God. And I think your brain would burst. Can you handle the kind of contraries that God uh, sees as second nature? The contradiction and collision at the crux of the cross. Can we handle those things? Can we see how every human being's agency interacts with everyone else's and still be able to sort out the tangled mess that we make of things? The natural mind, just like the natural man, cannot handle, cannot abide the presence of God. No wonder we need to overcome and put off those natural carnal things and become saints through the atonement of Christ. Verse 13, ye are not able to abide the presence of God now. Whether it was fear or pride or jealousy or all of the above, you can't abide my presence now. In fact, you can't even abide the ministering of angels. That's okay though. I'm patient. I've got, I'm eternal. I got all day. Wherefore, continue in patience until ye are perfected. And perfected, that ED makes all the difference. That's the past participle, it's not the adjective. You're not perfect, it's you're perfected. Or as, more, as Moroni says, to become perfect in Christ. Be patient 
and continue in that patience. I played the long game. I am able to make you holy, but it's not a, an overnight quick fix. Why do you think I restored the Aaronic priesthood with its keys of the ministering of angels? Why do you think I restored the Melchizedek priesthood, which enables us to enter the presence of God? I love what he hints at there in verse 13. You can't handle my, my presence. You can't handle the ministry of angels. So let uh, you can be, continue in patience through the ordinances of my priesthood, so that the Aaronic ordinances prepare you for the ministry of angels, and the Melchizedek ordinances prepare you to abide the presence of God. Don't worry. We got this. Just keep progressing. And then verse 14, let not your minds turn back. Ask Lot's wife what happens when we do that. And when ye are worthy in mine own due time, ye shall see and know that which was conferred upon you by the hands of my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. Amen. I love the ending of this. Don't let your minds turn back. Even in terms of the missed opportunity you had, as Joseph talks about, I mean, the veil can be parted at any time. Might as well be this week rather than in the eternities. And they missed out. But don't, don't beat yourself up over those missed opportunities. Don't condemn yourself eternally over your fear or your jealousy and the things that were wrong about your heart. Just keep perfecting it. In fact, just let me keep perfecting it. Once your worthiness coincides with my willingness. You see how both of those uh, coincide in verse 14? When ye are worthy and in mine own due time. So our worthiness, Christ's willingness, once those two come together, then you'll see and know. Know for sure. Know with a perfect knowledge. See with the spiritual eye and know with the spiritual mind. Once that happens, you'll get it. And I, the ending is so powerful. You'll see and know that which was conferred upon you by the hands of my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. It's like, and, and what have they been, I mean, that could apply to a lot of different things because Joseph has conferred so many things upon them. I mean, we, he, we could refer to the priesthood since that's hinted at in 13 with the ministry of angels in the presence of God. Do you understand what these priesthoods are really for? Someday you'll get it. Like, wow, the Aaronic priesthood ordinances really did prepare me for the ministry of angels. And the Melchizedek Priesthood Ordinances really did prepare me for the presence of God. Wow, now I get it. I see and know what Joseph conferred upon us. But I wonder too, in the context of this revelation, they're talking about scripture. And, and yeah, it's awesome and it's great. And I, I, I think it's, it's, it's canonizable. <laughs> I think it meets the criteria and has gone through these stages of authorization. I think it'll help people. Yeah, let's, let's go for this. But I love the Lord's kind of hint and promise of, the preview of coming attractions. Someday, when you're fully worthy, you'll catch a glimpse of what I've given you through my word. In one of those institute classes where I was talking about squeezing oranges and brushing teeth and talking to my students about the power of God's word, I'll always remember one student raised her hand and said, in such honest sincerity, just said, I don't know if we know what we're missing. And right then another student raised his hand in the other corner of class and said, and I don't know if we know how to get there. And I thought, then this is the perfect place for you to be. Because all semester long, we're going to talk about how to study the scriptures. And it was, it was amazing experience for all of us. The idea here, I don't know if we know what we're missing. Oh, the Lord admits that in verse 14. 
you have any idea what I have conferred upon you through my prophet? Do you have a, can you catch a glimpse, get a clue of what is in my word? And once you do, have a taste of what you're missing. Do you know how to get there? The Lord's letting us know in revelations like this. And it is worth every ounce of effort we put into squeezing the juice. I promise you that. In fact, I look forward to having verse 14 fully fulfilled for me too. I do feel like after a lifetime of scripture study that I, I get it, that I see and know just what God has conferred upon us through Joseph Smith. And yet, I, I agree with what Joseph and Oliver said after their baptism and going back to the scripture and being blown away with all that was really there. I look forward to continuing in patience and becoming more fully worthy to be perfected in Christ. And once that coincides with the will of a father of lights that desires to give me fat things to feast upon, then someday I will see and know even better than I see and know now. Just what we have in these books that God has given us through his servants. God be thanked for the gift of his word and the privilege of being able to study it. Oh, sorry, not sorry, for taking so long on 14 verses of section 67. It, it, it's the meta message. It's God's word about God's word. I hope it affects everything that we do in our scripture study, wherever we happen to be in, in, in the canon. With 67 behind us, though, well, not completely. It's, it's always hovering over us. We've got to know these things are true. But section 60, 68 comes at the same conference. We have a handful of, of church members that aren't just wondering about what to do with God's word, but also, well, what to do with God's will, and namely, what is it for me? I know what we should be doing now with the scriptures, but what do I do with my time? Does God have a mission for me? And so they ask Joseph for help on that. In verse 1, the Lord speaks directly to my servant Orson Hyde. Amazing man. Uh, incredible intellectual gifts. Uh, he's the one that eventually was sent uh, to dedicate Jerusalem and Israel for the gathering of, of Israel. The Orson Hyde Memorial Garden in Jerusalem is a beautiful place. Well, here, God's servant Orson Hyde is called by his ordination to proclaim the everlasting gospel by the spirit of the living God from people to people and from land to land in the congregations of the wicked in their synagogues, reasoning with and expounding all scriptures unto them. And Orson Hyde would do all of that. Like I said, he went to the Holy Land. I mean, he's, he preached in England. He, all over Europe and the, in the United States, he went from land to land and people to people. We see that word synagogues again, right next to the word reasoning again. So not just places of worship, but places of learning. Still too many people trusting in, in academia, holding to Athens more than to Jerusalem. Well, for one who went to Jerusalem, Hyde knew his Athens really well, too, and he's trying to fuse the two. Okay? So reason with them. Expound all scripture unto them. But make sure you do it by the Spirit of the living God. What are you going to teach? The everlasting gospel. How are you going to teach it? It better be by the Spirit. Because if not, if it's by some other way, then it's not of God, right? But I also love at the beginning of the verse, he was called by his ordination. Hmm. I thought I was called of God. Well, yeah, but did you have to wait for, I mean, to have an engraven invitation? When I ordained you, I called you. 
when I gave you priesthood authority, it came with priesthood responsibility. And one of the biggest responsibilities of the priesthood, this is what it means to be part of the family of Abraham. In thee and in thy seed, namely thy priesthood, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I called you by your ordination to proclaim the everlasting gospel. I had a professor at BYU when I was an, uh, a freshman uh, that, that put it probably more bluntly than, than necessary, but boy, it stuck. He said to us, if you guys don't go on missions, then give the priesthood back. I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, now, not, not to ramp up the pressure on anybody. And I know that full-time missions are not available to everyone, whether physical or mental. There's things that can keep us from that, that kind of mission. But a mission to share the gospel, to preach it, proclaim it by the Spirit of the living God, that, is not, that was never meant to be confined to an 18 to 24 month period, believe me. It's supposed to be, you were called by your ordination from that moment on to spend the rest of your life building the kingdom of God, proclaiming his everlasting gospel. Tag or no tag, if you, if you don't share the gospel, that would have been better. Not just if you don't go on a mission, although that's... For, for every worthy and able young man, that is part of your ordination too. But to proclaim the gospel, to share the light that the Father of Light has given you, then yes, you were called by your ordination. We could even say you were called by your baptism. We could even say you were called by your birth, since birth is proof that you accepted the Father's plan in premortality. Yeah, we're all supposed to be preaching the gospel. In verse 2, the revelation continues, Behold, and lo, this is an ensample, we would say example, unto all those who were ordained unto this priesthood, whose mission is appointed unto them to go forth. And what is that example? Verse 3, this is the ensample unto them, that they shall speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Now, I love verse 3's clarification of verse 2. Because in verse 2, we just take it and it's like, oh, well, Orson Hyde, you're supposed to be an example. So go out and preach the gospel. And he went on a mission, so everyone else is supposed to go on a mission. Well, let's be more specific about the type of example that Orson Hyde is supposed to be setting. It's not just to go out and proclaim. It's not just to do the what. It's to do it in a certain way. It's the adverb, not just the verb. It's the how, not just the what. And what's the how? You have to do it by the Holy Ghost. That's how they were going to gain a testimony in section 67. That's how others need to gain a testimony in, here in 68. I mean, this goes back to our discussion of, of section 5 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is still, in my opinion, one of the masterpieces. That wouldn't have been one of the least that they chose to try to, to mimic, okay? In that one, Martin Harris is told, it has to be my way, not your way. It has to be by the Spirit, not by some kind of tangible proof. It's, actually, to me, I have mixed feelings about Preach My Gospel, uh, it came out after I was a missionary, and I'm, je I'm jealous. That's part of what's moving me. Uh, I haven't been stripped of my jealousies yet. My jealousy was flexibility. Preach My Gospel lets you tailor things to the needs of the investigator. Me, I was... Trapped is probably too strong, but I kind of felt that way sometimes. I was chained to the six discussions that you had to do in this order and in this way. And this is where you testify and this is where you ask. I was grateful for that as a greenie when I didn't know what I was doing. But later on in my mission, it was like, this person needs the fourth, the fourth discussion. And they need it right now. I don't have time to go in order. My favorite people to teach on my mission were eternal investigators. Because they'd already had the six discussions and I could check off the box and go, okay, somebody else did that. Now I can just meet your needs. What do you need to know? 
because the gospel is true. And since you haven't joined it yet, there must be something about it you don't yet understand. So let's talk. And just to teach by the power of God, to teach by the Spirit, to speak as moved upon by the Holy Ghost, those were my favorite experiences as a missionary and the most effective ones for people who needed to learn by the power of the Holy Ghost as well. Well, like I said, I was so jealous when Preach My Gospel came out. I said, I was born too early. I wish I'd been a missionary during these days. But what concerned me as I would go on exchanges with full-time missionaries that had the flexibility of Preach My Gospel and, sadly, weren't taking advantage of it. It was like, guys, you can teach anything. So teach something. <laughs> Come on. And unfortunately, it's still young missionaries that are struggling, and I don't know what to say. And, and so they hear a way that their trainer or some other companion described things. They're like, oh, that's how I do it. Okay. And so I'm going to use the same analogy they did, or I'm going to do the same, you know, I'm going to explain things in the same exact way as them. And it was like, what example is the, is the trainer setting? What example is Preach My Gospel setting? And it was all the what's. This is how you explain this thing. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't just, don't just model for me the what of what to say. Don't, don't give me word tracts to follow. Teach me how to proclaim the gospel by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what I need to know. I'll say it differently than my trainer. This investigator will need to hear it differently from that investigator. That's what the flexibility of Preach My Gospel intended. Not just to... Because if we've shifted from doing it the same way every single time, the way the, the missionary department told me in the old discussions, versus now doing it exactly the same way every time because this is what my trainer, that's how, that's how he or she did it, ooh, we've actually moved in the wrong direction. We're mimic, mimicking a, an inferior model. And that's, that's, that was not the, the missionary department's hope in, in granting us that flexibility. What it, what it boils down to is verse 3. What example should a trainer be setting? What example should MTC teachers be giving to their missionaries? What examples should mission presidents be conveying? What examples? It's not the word track. It's not the lines to memorize. It's the way, the principles of gospel teaching, which boil down to trust in the power of the Holy Ghost. If we do it in any other way, it is not of God. And then as if to dramatize this, to open it, verse 4 is a mind-blowing scripture. The implications of this verse are incredible. And whatsoever they shall speak. And who's the they? He doesn't limit it to Joseph Smith or presidents of the church. He doesn't limit it to, to members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Orson Hyde will eventually be one of those. The, the antecedent of the pronoun, if we want to get grammatical, the they in verse 4 goes back to verse 2, all those who were ordained unto this priesthood. And I would suggest that it's not just official priesthood ordination to an office in the priesthood, but being ordained slash set apart. I mean, the word ordained was used for Emma Smith back in section 25, so I'm including you, sisters. Anyone who is supposed to function with God's authority, as President Oak said, well, then that has to be priesthood, because what other kind of authority is there? So whether you were ordained to an office in the priesthood, there's men, 
or whether you were ordained, set apart to any responsibility to speak for God, that's men and women together, all of us, we are the they of verse 4. So here's the promise. And whatsoever they, we, shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, since that's the example we're supposed to be following, shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. Now, on the one hand, this promise should be so empowering, so reassuring. I've got your back. If you say it when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, I'll confirm your words. I'll, I'll claim them as my own. I will own them. They'll be my, my will and my mind and my word and my voice. It'll be my power because I'll back them up. You don't have to have all the flowery language. Joseph didn't. Go back to section 67. It's not mortal eloquence I'm after. It is, it is divine power. It is trusting in that. And if you do that, your words will be scripture. Now, in our conversation about stages of authorization and, and criteria of canonization and so on, he's not saying it's, going to be, it's not going to be canon. We're not going to add it to the Doctrine and Covenants. It might be intended personally for you or for your investigators. The people in that, under that small umbrella that you have of your stewardship and responsibility. It's not going to be Catholic uh, or for traditional use for a worldwide church, okay? It's not canon. But can it be scripture? Can it be something worth writing down in terms of the inspiration or the insights that God has given me? Is it worth someone else writing down, taking notes about the insights that God has given them or that we've learned from General Conference or whatever the case might be? Yes, that is scripture. Maybe just for clarity's sake, we keep it lowercase s, uh, and we offer these words, the capital S of Scripture. But God is still willing to claim it. And again, look at the list of what he says. What we say when the Spirit prompts us. To call it Scripture is great, but to see the fuller definition, God's will, his mind, his word, his voice, his power. By the way, I love to take all those words and couple it to the Scripture that we study every day. Do I realize that God is conveying to me his will and his mind and his word and his voice? His power is coming through these words to me. That's what, script, that's what makes scripture study powerful. So it drives my desire to be consistent and intense when I'm in it. But think of it this way. When you move, are moved upon by the Holy Ghost and you speak by that spirit, you are conveying God's will, his desires, his intent, his mind which includes his thoughts, his perspective on things, his word, divine language, divine instructions, his voice, the personality behind it, the tone comes in through voice more than just through word, and his power, the authority, the passion behind it, all of that can be part of the scripture that we study and part of the scripture that we create every time the Holy Ghost is with us. And just in case we balk at this promise, if we get a little dizzy looking down from these dizzying heights, if we fear the parting of this kind of veil, verse 5, Behold, this is the promise of the Lord unto you, O ye my servants. You have my word on it, and I'm the word of God. So powerful. Now, there, there's something that we need to understand here, though. And it's a question that 
anybody who's ever read section 68 verse 4 probably grapples with. Like, well, how do I know then? How do I know if my bishop is really giving me scripture or if it's just advice from a good friend? How do I know when the prophet is speaking as a prophet as opposed to simply speaking as a mortal man? Because there's evidence of both of those in every prophetic ministry. How do I know when, when something fits the criteria of verse 4? Well, President J. Reuben Clark, the first presidency years ago, even gave a talk or wrote a message about how do I know when the words of prophets constitute scripture? In other words, how do I discern that section 68 verse 4 is in effect? And President Clark's statement is basically, well, they are speaking by the Spirit. The only way you'll know is if you are receiving by the same Spirit, which means you need to feel the same responsibility as they do to be in tune with that. That takes us back to section 50 that we keep referring to, that it has to be by the power of God and not some other way. And that's true of the giver as well as the receiver. That's why they rejoice together. That's why both are edified. That's why they understand each other. That's the mutually beneficial, the mutual rejoicing, the mutual comprehension. It has to be mutual. We have to be in tune with the same spirit. And as President Clark points out, that puts the burden of responsibility on the receiver to know if section 68 verse 4 is in effect. Hmm. I do have to think for myself. I do have to be an agent rather than a mere object. I have to seek the Spirit and live worthy of it as diligently as do those who are called upon to speak. I actually love the way it was described by Nathaniel Givens. Terrell and Fiona Givens are, are a celestial couple. I know them both and I've spent some, they, they've been life changing for me. Their more recent books written together, uh, I mean, this is, this is a dynamic duo of husband and wife. Uh, and their books, the, the God Who Weeps and The Christ Who Heals and All Things New and Crucible of Doubt have, have made a great impact in, among, in my life and among so many in the church. And I love all the books that, that Terrell Givens has written from an academic perspective, too. They're, they're mind-blowing. I actually had a, someone reach out to me who's a, a, a Protestant divinity school student that's saying, I've, I've met with the missionaries. I'm not interested in joining your church, but I'm fascinated by, quote-unquote, Mormonism. Um, and I'd love to, to know more. Uh, where do I even begin? And she and I have had some fascinating conversations, and I've said, oh, read everything you can from Terrell Givens. If you want an academic approach to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, go with him. Well, his son, Nathaniel, the, the fruit has not fallen far from the tree, said this about section 68, verse 4. As for the question of what is or is not revelation, the answer is simple. People just don't like to hear it. And then he quotes this verse. Wait, really? That's it? Yeah, that's it. There's your answer, he said. And in terms of simple language, it's not hard to understand. The problem is that it doesn't do what people want. What people want is to be absolved of responsibility. They want a formula, a rule book, or an oracle to which they can defer tough questions. God says, if you want to know if it's scripture or not, you're going to have to have your own connection to the Holy Ghost sufficient to figure that out. In other words, the burden is on you, which is exactly what J. Reuben Clark said. People say, that sounds like hard work. Please give us a cheat sheet. And when God refuses to give out a cheat sheet, people just invent one. They invent doctrines of prophetic or scriptural inerrancy or sufficiency or infallibility, all of which serve more or less the exact same purpose as the original golden calf 
a simulacrum of the divine that doesn't ask us to do any genuine hard work. I love that statement. I, I think he nails it. We don't want to have to think. We don't want to have to exercise faith. We don't want to have to tap into the same spirit that the prophets or apostles or priesthood leaders or missionaries or whomever are, are paying such a price to be able to tap into. Can I just say that all scripture is, is inerrant and I don't have to pay a price of interpretation and making sense and contextualization and, and, and everything else. Can I just say that prophets are infallible and then I don't have to think about their words. I just lockstep, that's what he said, and that, ah, be careful. Life is messier than that and was intended to be so that we have a chance to develop faith, to flex some muscles of our own. So don't go golden calf. We have more important things to do with the gold that, that they ended up melting down into that. It was meant for temple and tabernacle implements. So sanctify yourself. Don't let your minds turn back. Be, uh, continue in patience until you are perfected. It's actually one of the things I love most about prophetic confidence. Where they don't, don't try to prove. They, they don't like, you, gotta, you just trust me, please. And they don't pull out their, their credentials and say, well, I'm a prophet. You have to listen to me. No, it's just, here's the word of God. Take it or leave it. It's like what President Benson said about the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is not on trial. We are. Can I be in tune with this Holy Ghost so that I know that the prophets have been in tune with the same Spirit? I want to come back to that in tune concept in a, in a moment. Am I on the same wavelength? Uh, quarterback and receiver, are we seeing the same defense? Are we following the same play? Are we, are we a one on this? Now go back to section 68 verse 6. With this dizzying doctrine in mind, wherefore be of good cheer and do not fear. For I the Lord am with you and will stand by you. And ye shall bear record of me, even Jesus Christ, that I am the son of the living God, that I was, that I am, that I am to come. Past, present, future, all verb tenses center in me. So cheer up. There's nothing to fear. I've got this and I've got you. Come unto me, abide in me, the Spirit will abide in you, and what you say I will validate. God vindicates the prophets. We saw that so many times in the Book of Mormon last year. When Jesus descends among the Nephites, it's one of the first of the two things he says. Well, three things. Here's who I am. Same kind of thing we saw here. I'm the son of the living God. I was, I am, I am to come. And I do the will of the Father. That's the thing you need to know about me. I am submissive, obedient. But the third thing he mentions, I'm the one that came just like the prophet said I would. So I've got the prophets back. I mean, they own me. I own them. So why would you fear? Why would you hang your head down? Look up. Be of good cheer. Don't fear. I'm, I got you. Verse 7, this is the word of the Lord unto you, my servant Orson Hyde, and also unto my servant Luke Johnson and Lyman Johnson and William E. McClellan. Yeah, even you, you had more learning than sense, but I, I, I'm patient. So go out. I, I say, in fact, let me just blanket statement. This is unto all the faithful elders of my church. The they is we, after all. Okay. So this applies across the board. And what are we, they, all of us, supposed to do? Verse 8, go ye into all the world. 
Preach the gospel to every creature, acting in the authority which I have given you, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Great verbs there. Go, preach, act, baptize. There's a mission call for you, called by your ordination. Verse 9, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You see, they have a role to play too. And how they exercise their agency will determine their outcome. Verse 10, he that believeth shall be blessed with signs following, even as it is written. And unto you it shall be given to know the signs of the times and the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. A lot of signs mentioned in those two verses. But the signs always follow rather than precede faith. So exercise your faith. Now verse 12, of as many as the Father shall bear record, to you shall be given power to seal them up unto eternal life. Amen. And with that amen, we see the end of this section. There's going to be an, another section that actually was added after the fact that has to do with a couple of priesthood offices that don't yet exist when this revelation is given in 1831. But it fits so perfectly in the context here that Joseph added it to this revelation when it was canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants in, in, section eight, in, in 1835. It has to do with uh, presiding bishops. It has to do with uh, the First Presidency. And again, those, those realities are still a little ways off. So the Amen at the end of verse 12, let's, let's finish this, this counsel to these missionaries. And what I love what it does, it kind of puts an exclamation point on what we've been studying so far about these missionaries going forth and speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, and that's scripture, and, and you're going to go to preach the gospel to all the world through the power of that spirit, and some will believe and be saved, and others won't and be damned, and, and signs will follow. It's like, whoa, this is some serious business we're involved in. Well, yeah, with eternal implications. But verse 12, if the Father bears record of certain people, as many as the Father bears record of, you'll have the power to seal them up unto eternal life. You see the synergy between God and humanity? We saw it earlier. You speak, but it'll be by my spirit, and I'll back up everything you say. Well, here I want you to seal people up unto eternal life. This isn't a temple sealing like husbands and wives or families. This is that this person will be saved. It's as if I could pass judgment and they're going to make it. Well, how on earth can I do that? Well, if the Father bears record, you'll know. This is like that responsibility on us of knowing when somebody else is moved upon by the Spirit. Am I moved upon by the same thing? And the Spirit is letting me know these things. I actually had a profound experience as a missionary myself. When we taught a, a family, they all wanted to join the church, and, and we were doing the baptismal interview. And uh, there's some hard questions that are asked about previous behavior that it was sinful or significant enough that repentance might be a harder thing. Uh, and you might need some priesthood keys. It's like confessing to God versus confessing to priesthood leaders. Same kind of thing when someone's joining the church. And in this particular case, the question was about uh, abortion. Have you ever uh, participated in an abortion? And sadly, the, the wife in this family, amazing couple, uh, just in early on in, in her life, had been pregnant and had, had aborted the pregnancy. She didn't uh, know the gospel. Uh, she'd made that mistake. And, and I just remember she was so intent on being baptized, had such a strong testimony and, and such a sweet celestial soul. And, and when she realized that this was a, a huge thing 
And we just said to her, you know, we're, in instances like this, we're going to need to talk to our mission president. And, and there, he might need, he'll probably need to interview you just to make, it's kind of above our pay grade. I mean, I'm 19 years old, okay? I've kind of wet behind the ears. So is it okay with you if we call our mission president and set up that interview? And even before she could say anything, her husband, uh, who was a big, strong Puerto Rican, uh, who knew how to use a machete really well, because he and I would go and, and do yard work in the backyard with his machete. That's how, that's how most Puerto Ricans I knew mowed the lawn, okay? Machete, it was pretty awesome. Um, and, and I just remember him like rising in anger, like, how dare you dredge this up for my, to, for my wife? And it's hard enough to make her go through this right now with you guys that we know and love. But some stranger, she has to dredge up these, these painful memories to him too. And he was just, he was mad. And he didn't want to have a second round of interviews for his wife. And it was so interesting because he was just getting you know, louder and, and angry. And, and it was like, she's forgiven. She's repented of those sins and she's clean. And there's nothing to keep her from being baptized. And I found myself saying something I never would have said. I mean, talk about being moved upon by the Holy, Holy Ghost. Um, it, it must have been the will and mind and word and voice and power of God because it certainly wasn't mine. I never would have said this. But when, when he said, she's forgiven, she's clean, I just kind of rose up in my seat and said, how do you know? And then like we all just kind of froze. I was frozen in fear. Uh, he was frozen in shock. Like, like, am I calling him out? Like, how do you know? And, and we just paused for a second, kind of hoping that no machete was going to be pulled out. Uh, and then I heard myself say, yeah, how do you know? I'm not accusing you. I'm not second guessing you. I just really want you to think. In fact, I agree with you. As I've come to know your wife, she's amazing. But, but honestly, how do you know? And as, as the, call, the tension in the room had uh, dispelled, he sat there thinking and he said, I just, I just feel it. I just feel, I feel the Holy Ghost when I read the Book of Mormon. I feel the Holy Ghost when I listen to your message. I feel the Holy Ghost with my wife. We, we, we're coming to understand truth and, and purity through the atonement of Jesus Christ. I, I feel clean from my own sins. I feel my wife cleansed of hers. We just want to be baptized and make this eternal covenant. I feel through the Holy Ghost, if I have to put it that way, I feel from the Holy Ghost that she's been forgiven. And then I did something else that I didn't expect. This is one of those, open your mouth and it shall be filled. And I'm like, I have, I'm curious to see what it'll be filled with next. And I said, um, how many Holy Ghosts are there? And I'm like, what kind of a dumb question is that? <laughs> And my companion is probably going, what? Halverson's lost it. And this, this poor set of investigators are like, what? are you serious? How many Holy Ghosts are there? I'm like, yeah, um, seriously. How many Holy Ghosts are there? And he said, um, one, unless there's some deep doctrine you're trying to speculate on. I'm like, I don't know. I agree. There's only one. And think about what you just said. How do you know that your wife is forgiven? From the Holy Ghost. And there's only one of them. And so if the Holy Ghost is telling you that she's forgiven, provided that we're in tune with it, right? Burdens on us. But provided we're in tune with that same Holy Ghost that told you that, well, wouldn't the same Holy Ghost tell others the same answer since there's only one spirit? 
I said, you know, if your wife were to talk to our mission president, I'm sure he's going to be trying to, in, to discern from the Lord if she's repentant and worthy to be baptized. And since there's only one spirit, won't the same spirit that told you she's clean tell my mission president that she's clean? To have a second witness? Would you be okay with that? To trust your wife to my mission president and more importantly to the same spirit that's been communicating with you? And it was just amazing how that same spirit, there's only one, just kind of filled us all. And the husband just very meekly said, yeah. And the wife very meekly, who'd been hoping for that, I just want to be baptized. I, I'm okay with this. Well, little did I, little could I expect the next, the sequel of the story. Because when I called the mission president to try to set up an appointment for him to speak with her, not telling him the story, he asked me, what do you think, Elder Halverson? And it was so interesting where it's like, now he's putting the burden on me. And it was like a, I don't know, calling my bluff to see if it was one. You just said there was only one Holy Ghost. Do you believe that? You had faith that that same single spirit would confirm this reality to the mission president. Because you know he's in tune. Do you trust that you are? Have you tapped into that same spirit? And it was such an amazing kind of come full circle and the Lord teach me the lesson as I went through that spiritual gut check and was able to say to my mission president, actually, yes, I do believe she's repented. And I do believe she's worthy to be baptized. And he said, then baptize her. And I'm like, well, after, after you do the interview? He's like, no. I basically just did, through you, through that same spirit, essentially. It was an incredible experience. The, the Father will bear record that this person is to be sealed up unto eternal life. And if we're in tune with the Father, then we'll know the Father's will. In fact, we can speak it. We can speak His will and mind and word and voice. We'll have His power. Because that's what He's trying to help us grow up to become. It's an incredible process. Now, after the amen, he shifts gears and speaks about this other issue about presiding bishops and first presidencies and so on. It lasts for the next 10 or 11 verses. Uh, and it's one that I hardly ever hear quoted anywhere because it seems like such a rare set of circumstances. But let's study it. There remain hereafter in the due time of the Lord other bishops to be set apart unto the church to minister even according to the first. The first was Edward Partridge. He's now down in Missouri. And now that we realize we're not all going to Missouri because we need this stronghold in Kirtland, well, that means they're gonna, we're going to need another, uh, another bishop here in Kirtland. And give it another couple of weeks, and it'll be designated that Newell K. Whitney, with his store, slash the store, he'll be the bishop in Ohio. So we now we'll have two bishops for the two gathering places. And the cool thing here in verse 14, there will be other bishops to be set apart. That's plural. More than just a second? Oh yeah. Because there will be gathering places worldwide and there will need to be bishops for every congregation of saints. A judge in Israel. Someone to preside over the Aaronic priesthood. And now what? We've got 30,000 plus across the world. Other bishops indeed. But because there are all these other bishops, we're going to need a presiding bishop that's over them all. 
Now, they don't yet know all this. And, and, and again, there's only one now. There'll soon be two. And it, it'll be a while before there's even a need for a presiding bishop. But the Lord's kind of setting things up in advance. Now, verse 5, let's talk more about bishops in general. Wherefore, they shall be high priests who are worthy, and they shall be appointed by the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood, except they be literal descendants of Aaron. Now, this is where it starts to get a little lightweight, huh? We're talking about literal descendants of Aaron for the Aaronic priesthood, and the bishop is the head of the Aaronic priesthood. So, okay, how does this work? Now, what we're about to read refers more to presiding bishop than the bishop of wards, okay? And while the... The connection to, a, to Aaron through literal descendants uh, is kind of the shock and awe, like, wait, what? This is kind of trippy. Uh, well, that's the part that's going to grab our attention. Reserve one of your eyes for the presence of the first presidency because they keep being mentioned. And that's an important detail that we'll see. So verse 16, if they be literal descendants of Aaron, they have a legal right to the bishopric if they are the firstborn among the sons of Aaron. So here's the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the tribes of Israel. We're going to stick with the Levite tribe. There's, there's the Levitical priesthood, but within the Levites, it's going to be Aaron. And Aaron, uh, his posterity, direct line, especially if it's the firstborn of each generation of, of Aaronic sons, they're the ones that have a legal right to this presiding bishopric. Father to son, lineal descent. Verse 17, for the firstborn holds the right of the presidency over this priesthood and the keys or authority of the same. Verse 18, no man has a legal right to this office to hold the keys of this priesthood, except he be a literal descendant and the firstborn of Aaron. Now it's like, whoa, so is somebody just going to kind of show up and, you know, I don't know, show their patriarchal blessing or say, hey, I'm a Levite. Uh, be hard to, to prove that I'm a firstborn of the sons of Aaron because even patriarchal blessings aren't that specific at least none that I know of, but I have a legal right. Now, I mean, anybody who, who, wants, who goes, wants to go claim, like, hey, I should be bishop of this ward, well, uh, you probably get what you deserve, <laughs> all the work that you're going to be engaged in. But that's not how it works. They're, they're called to be bishop. And it, lineage aside, and that's what verse 19 explains. But as a high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood has authority to officiate in all the lesser offices, I mean, this higher versus lesser, we saw back in section 20. We'll see it again in 84 and 107. And since Melchizedek priests, especially high priests, they can do everything below them. It's like a priest can, can uh, pass the sacrament, but a deacon can't bless it. Now, you can do things that, were, that you used to have authority to do as you've uh, gone through other uh, elements of the ordination. So since Melchizedek is the big umbrella and Aaronic is a, a smaller umbrella, a lesser umbrella within it, then as long as you are a high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood, then you can officiate in all the lesser offices, including that of bishop. So he may officiate in the office of bishop when no literal descendant of Aaron can be found. But then notice this, provided he is called and set apart and ordained unto this power under the hands of the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, bishops on the local level don't have to be ordained by the first presidency. They, they wouldn't have time to do anything else if that was the case. Okay? But from the presiding bishopric, that's where the first presidency is fully involved in the calling and setting apart and ordaining. Verse 20, a literal descendant of Aaron. So here's that still of that possibility. And it's like, well, but what if somebody shows up and says, I, I am uh, Aaron 2.0. 
a literal descendant of Aaron also must be designated by this presidency. So that's what I told you to keep an eye out for them. Oh, okay, so it's not just somebody comes up and, and, and shows their, their genealogy and usurps authority and says, Bishop Kosei, you're, you're no longer needed here. No, 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 no. It's going to be designated by this presidency and found worthy and anointed and ordained under the hands of this presidency. Otherwise, they are not legally authorized to officiate in their priesthood. See the difference there? He'll reiterate some things in 21 and 22. By virtue of the decree concerning their right of the priesthood, descending from father to son, they may claim their anointing if at any time they can prove their lineage or do ascertain it by revelation from the Lord under the hands of the above-named presidency. So you see the presence of the first presidency again in that? I mean, there's no sidestepping proper channels. This is a house of order, the Lord says. And so whether it's, it's identifying someone who has the legal right because of direct descendancy from Aaron and the firstborn among those families, uh, or a high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood that has authority to function in that role because it is under the, the larger umbrella of Melchizedek priesthood, either way, first presidency. Don't, don't, don't get all... I don't know, out of kilter here on, on these verses about some possibility of some, some ironic priest coming forth and, and claiming the legal right to the, to the presiding bishop. The first presidency will know. That's the promise back in section 42. Nobody's going to come out of left field to claim that I'm the next prophet or the next presiding bishop or anything else. That's where false prophets and false teachers come forth, deceiving the very elect according to the covenant. We've seen a few of those kind of schism groups even in the last decade or so. Like section 42 said, it will be known unto the church that they have been ordained, that they've been called. Proper channels. And First Presidency keeps coming up here to remind us of that. They show up again in 22. No bishop or high priest who shall be set apart for this ministry shall be tried or condemned for any crime, save it be before the First Presidency of the church. It's one of the tricky things about church discipline. It's like, well, if the bishop is the judge in Israel, well, who judges the judge? Uh, now, on the local level, again, the state presidency uh, can do that for a, a disciplinary council and so on. But for the presiding bishop, yeah, that's under the responsibility of the first presidency, too. In verse 23, inasmuch as he is found guilty before this presidency by testimony that cannot be impeached, he shall be condemned. But there's the justice. Here's the mercy. Verse 24, if he repent, he shall be forgiven according to the covenants and commandments of the church. No one on any level is outside the demands of justice, and no one on any level is outside the reach of mercy. That still applies across the board. Now, verse 25, to the end of this revelation, he shifts his attention one more time. And what I love about this is the first, oh, what was it, 12 verses are for the elders of the church that are going to go out and speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. Then the next chunk we have, oh, well, presiding bishops and first presidency and so on. Well, verse 25 to the end, who's the, the target audience? Parents. And I love that the Lord, in discussing how the church is supposed to operate, well, let's talk about parents. Because that's really where the rubber is going to hit the road. The most important presiding quorum is mom and dad, okay? And raising the next generation. All this other stuff is just scaffolding. The church itself is means. The eternal family is the end. So let's cut to the chase. We'll see this dramatized, in my opinion, most powerfully in section 93, where he talks some more about parenting in context of some earth-shattering revelation. I mean, hold on till then, okay? Section 93 is incredible. 
But here for parents, notice verse 25. Again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, again, we're going to have a lot more gathering places than one, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands, when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. Now that is a, a powerful verse for every parent in Zion, wherever, whatever stake you happen to be in. And what's it tell us we have to be doing? We better be teaching our children. And what are we supposed to teach them? Oh, fourth article of faith. Faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. We're good. Now, here's the interesting thing about this verse. And, and this, this insight comes from uh, Elder David A. Bednar. He, oh, he explained this verse in a way that just totally changed my perspective as a teacher, as a parent. Uh, it's incredible. Because here's the thing. What parent in Zion can't, can't at least say, oh, I'm pretty sure I've read the fourth article of faith to my kids. I mean, I think they learned the song in primary. I mean, they should know faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. That's, that's pretty basic. But here's the thing. And here's the thing that Elder Bednar points out. That's not what the Lord is after in, in verse 25. In fact, when I've taught this in, in institute, I've often asked my students, I'm going to give you one noun and one verb to pick from verse 25 to tell me what the verse is about. What's the focal point? Okay, what, what is the Lord trying to say here? Tell me one noun and one verb. And they look it over and go, oh, uh, noun is parents and verb is teach. This is a verse about parents teaching. I'm like, awesome. Totally right. Except that you're wrong. Uh, and this is where Elder Bednar's insight comes in. Because Elder Bednar pointed out that this is not a verse about parents teaching. It's a verse about children understanding. And that's when I go back to my noun and verb. The most important noun here is children. Who's he worried about? He's worried about the rising generation. Are they learning the gospel? Are they being taught by their parents? In fact, are they being taught sufficiently to, that, to the point that they understand these things? Ah, that's the most important verb. And the way Elder Bednar point says it is, if this verse was about parents teaching, then that's just about an activity. Whereas if it's about children understanding, now the Lord is emphasizing an outcome. You catch the difference? I was blown away by this insight from Elder Bednar. If it's just about activities, and I, again, this is why I say this is a verse that's helped me as a teacher, not just as a parent. It helps me in both. As a teacher, sometimes we just think about activities. And what am I going to teach? And what am I going to say here? And what can I do there? As if it was all about us and the stuff that we're doing. As opposed to, oh, my students, what are they going to experience? How will they grapple with these things? What insights will come to their mind? How can I try to help them to have the experience of discovery that, that the Lord blessed me with? So I'm not activity focused. I'm outcome oriented. And that's the key. The Lord is outcome oriented. What he told the apostles in the book of John. You didn't choose me. I chose you and I ordained you to bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. I want the fruit, the children of Zion to remain. I want them to hold strong. I want them to understand faith and repentance and baptism and the Holy Ghost. They can probably parrot back the fourth article of faith or sing the song. But do they get it? Do they understand? In this, this contest between nurture and nature, 
I sometimes, on my worst days as a parent, I sometimes just vent to my wife and go, nurture's a crock. It doesn't do anything. It's just nature. They just came that way. And, and again, those are just on my worst days. Uh, I'm a firm believer in nurture. But I'm also a firm believer that nurture has to grapple with nature. And that the amount of nurture and the kind of nurture will largely be determined by the nature of the person that you're trying to teach or raise. Can I get an amen from all you parents out there? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, honestly, whenever somebody says, oh no, it's all nurture, I always think, you must have either no children or only one. And you thought it was all what you did. Uh-uh. My children, I've got five, and each came different. And I love them all, and their unique gifts. And I try to work with their unique challenges. Just like my parents did for me and my siblings. And if it's just about my activities as a parent teaching, oh, I do it all the time. Kids, just watch these videos. It'll save me tons of time of, of, of child rearing. But no, I have to make sure they understand. And sometimes that means teaching and teaching and teaching some more. It means explaining and illustrating and one-on-one -on -one and, and living principles of the gospel with them and helping them see it as they come to life. And thinking that they had it down at one point in their life and then realizing they've stopped understanding that somewhere along the way. And how do I help them understand it once again? Or the worst, it's like, I swear we taught that and they got it. And it's like, oh wait, were all the kids alive when we had that family home evening lesson? I know Eden got it, but I don't know if Monet did. Um, yeah, we better keep reviewing. Okay, and honestly, the, in verse 25, the, the issue of accountability is huge. Parents, you better make sure your kids get it, that they understand it by the time they're eight years old. Up to this point, we've been hinted about the years of accountability, and it's a little more vague. Now it's, okay, by age eight. Again, every individual child will be unique. And so some understand things a little earlier, some a little later, but let's make sure that we have a, at least a line that we're going to establish and draw in the sand that at least by eight years old, if, they haven't, if you haven't taught them to understand outcome, then the sin be upon your heads. Now, he didn't say the sins of the children. The second article of faith goes both ways, okay? The children aren't, uh, I won't be uh, punished for Adam's transgression. I'll be punished for my own sins. Well, I'm not punished by the things my parents did wrong, neither are they punished by the things that I did wrong. But if it's all this sinning and ignorance, which in some ways, who's responsible for the sin and who's responsible for the ignorance? Well, if the sin, singular, of not making sure my children understand, that's on me. They will still make their own decisions, their own choices. I can't control all of those. That's not the Father's plan either. Agency all across the board. But have I taught them sufficiently that they can exercise their agency wisely? Have I taken advantage of their unaccountable time? Remember, we saw that back in section 29, that those years of unaccountability are so that great things can be required at the hands of their fathers. Wow, so fathers and mothers, that unaccountable time was for our sake not just for theirs. It gave me preseason time to coach my team before things start counting on the permanent record. Oh, I hope, I hope practice is going well. I, I hope preseason is sufficient for the game that will follow. 
Now verse 26, this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion or in any of her stakes which are organized. That's how serious the Lord is about this. It is a law. Verse 27, their children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old and receive the laying on of the hands. So that clarifies the age. Verse 28, they shall also teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. Great combination there. Pray to me seems to suggest the Liahona flexibility side of things. Uh, my, I'm, an, I'm an agent discussing things with God. And to walk uprightly before the Lord seems to suggest the iron rod side of things. The spirit of the law, prayer. The letter of the law, walk uprightly. Both agency and obedience. Verse 29, the inhabitants of Zion shall also observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, which is much more parent-based than elder-based, first 12 verses, bishop-slash-first-presidency-based, next 10 or 11 verses. It, it's what's happening in the home. That's, there's parents in Zion. What will your Sabbath day look like? Will, it, will you keep it holy to the point that it can keep you and your children holy? Then 30, the inhabitants of Zion also shall remember their labors inasmuch as they are appointed to labor in all faithfulness. For the idler shall be had in remembrance before the Lord. So interesting that 29 is about the day of rest. And then 30, it's about the days of work. Remember your labor. An idler, that's something the Lord's going to remember. In fact, he remembers them already. Verse 31, now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion. At least those that jumped the gun to rush down there, assuming that Zion place was enough, even if you weren't Zion people. Those with the address but not the attitude. I'm not very well pleased, and here's why. There are idlers among them. And even worse, their children are growing up in wickedness. They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. So we have a good example of what parents are, the outcome good parenting is supposed to have in verse 25. Well, there's some bad outcomes in 31. And I'm not well pleased with either the parents or the kids. And in fact, maybe that's part, a connection there. If there's an intentionality inherent in verse 25, you've got to teach, and not just teach, but to teach them to understand. Then what about the, the unintentional parenting or the non-parenting that's going on in 31? Is it the parents that are idle, thinking, hey, I mean, there's a couple of possibilities here. It could be a literal idleness, like, I'm not going to work. God promised us a feast of fat things. So let's get multiplying loaves and fishes, shall we? I'm starting to get hungry down here. Again, especially if those are the ones that are jumping the gun, that haven't consecrated on the front Ohio end to the point of doing anything with stewardships on the back Missouri end. There was an order here, and... And it wasn't going the way it was supposed to go. So is there temporal idleness? I mean, at the end of 31, it says their eyes are full of greediness. So yeah, they want stuff. They're just not willing to work for it. And remember, stewardship is all about work. So no idlers in Zion. We talked about this last year in the Book of Mormon, that idleness, I-D-L-E, leads to idleness, I-D-O-L. Because real worship is real work. Whereas idolatry, you can get away with with idleness because those false gods don't ask anything of you. Back to the golden calf, right? That's just not life in Zion. It's not temporal life in Zion. It's certainly not spiritual life in Zion. It, it, it's not parenting in Zion. Unintentional parents will lead to unengaged children. 
as far as anxiously engaged is concerned. But remember the warning earlier that unintentional parenting is not unaccountable parenting. We can't afford, and our children can't afford, and Zion itself can't afford for children to grow up in wickedness. And maybe one other cause for some of this is, on the one hand, maybe there's that temporal idleness in Zion, because it's like, ah, it's all going to be covered for me. Uh, but I wonder if there's a different, only the spiritual idleness, whereas the temporal, there's no idleness there because I want to get rich. I mean, if my eyes are full of greediness and I want to work towards it, but there's not the same willingness to work towards spiritual good, that's what he says at the end. They seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness as far as, as Babylonian gold is concerned. And back in the context of parenting, is that something that gets in the way of us or our children seeking the riches of eternity? Because we're too busy seeking the riches of the world. We've got to be more anxiously engaged than that. Now going on, the end of this revelation, verse 32, these things ought not to be, there's an understatement, and must be done away from among them. Wherefore, let my servant Oliver Cowdery carry these sayings unto the land of Zion. So shape up and spread the word. This is a revelation received in Ohio, but it's the folks in Missouri that really need to hear it. So Oliver, when you're heading down there, bring this with you. Verse 33, And a commandment I give unto them, that he that observeth not his prayers before the Lord in the season thereof, let him be had in remembrance before the judge of my people. God is serious about prayer. Serious about all of this. Why? Because 34, these sayings are true and faithful. Wherefore, transgress them not, neither take therefrom. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega, and I come quickly. Amen. So we're back to second coming context. We're back to being reminded of who these words are coming from. Not from the will of man, but from the will of God. And they are true. They are faithful. So what he says in section 1 given around the same time period. Search these commandments, for they are true and faithful. But are you? Are you parents in Zion true to the cause of Christ? Are you faithful in your parental responsibilities? Because that defines Zion far more than some location on the western frontier. Now Oliver is quick to act on this. He was told in verse 32, carry these sayings down to Zion. Well, section 69, He's, is part of this mission. You see, Oliver wasn't just supposed to bring section 60, 68 with him. He was supposed to bring all the sections because W.W. Phelps, who had already been sent to Zion earlier, remember he and Oliver Cowdery were called to work together on several things, most of which that had to do with writing and printing and publishing, uh, a lot of which had to do with raising the next generation so that children can be taught in, in light and truth. Well, W.W. Phelps is already down in Missouri, and he's setting up a, a print shop. He's got the printing press, and, and he's, he's ready to roll. Well, Oliver Cowdery, you've got the, the other half of things. He's got the equipment. You have the content. And so, Oliver, I'm sending you down to Missouri with the revelations that we're going to print 10,000 copies of. And while you're at it, make sure that you, you whip the, the people in Zion into shape as far as their parenting is concerned. Well, section 69 is a revelation given in this same time period to give Oliver a little bit more instruction about, about where to go and who to go with, specifically. So 69 verse 1, Hearken unto me, saith the Lord your God, for my servant Oliver Cowdery's sake. It is not wisdom in me that he should be entrusted with the commandments and the monies which he shall carry unto the land of Zion, 
except one go with him who will be true and faithful. I mean, the words are true and faithful. We just saw that. So the ones with the responsibility of bringing them and publishing them, they better be true and faithful too. Now, on the one hand, it might sound like the Lord is, is not trusting Oliver's truth and faithfulness. I mean, it's not wisdom that he should be entrusted with the commandments and especially the money to go publish them. Is he, I mean, he, what's he going to go do with the scriptures if he goes rogue? Uh, who knows? But I mean, he, he's probably got plenty of options on things he could do with the money because it's going to cost a lot of consecrated funds to go publish these. I mean, scriptures don't print themselves. Okay, so bring the money, bring the, the revelations. But don't go alone. You shouldn't be entrusted with these things by yourself. Now, the, the important thing here is not that this is calling into question uh, Oliver's trustworthiness. That's why I love how it says at the beginning, this is for Oliver's sake. And we all know who have lived on, on missions uh, that having a companion is, it can feel like a burden sometimes, but overall it is such a blessing. I actually loved all of mine. Uh, and it's for your sake to have some backup. So to have someone helping you resist temptation, because so often we succumb to them when we are completely alone. Well, Oliver, for your sake, it's not that I don't trust you. It's that I don't trust human nature. Honestly, I don't trust the natural man. And we all grapple with that. And so I want everyone to have some, some backup, a second set of eyes or ears or hands or heart or conscience. And so in verse two, why don't you go with John Whitmer? I, the Lord, will that my servant John Whitmer should go with my servant Oliver Cowdery. I mean, you two should get along really well. Oliver had been the historian and recorder, and then John Whitmer was called to take his place when Oliver was sent on the Lamanite mission a while back. So you guys can, can talk history the whole way down. Verse 3, also that he, John Whitmer, shall continue in writing and making a history of all the important things which he shall observe and know concerning my church. So just because I'm sending him off on this mission, it doesn't mean he's off the hook on his other one. In fact, in some ways, they have a lot in common. Because now you are, you're going down there to publish the revelations and commandments of God. Well, I guess words are going to be your, your calling. And whether it's publishing the words of God or compiling and editing and, and writing and, and sending forth the words of the history of the church, do that too. All the important things. Now, how do you decide what that is? I guess in some ways you just uh, give everything the benefit of the doubt. And let's assemble and amass as much historical documentation and material as we possibly can. And the church archives are full of it. Now, verse 4 perhaps to help winnow that down a little, also that he received counsel and assistance from my servant Oliver Cowdery and others. Like I said, Oliver's already had this calling, and sometimes it's really helpful to ask a former bishop, how did you do it when you were just called? Or missionaries learning from their trainer? I mean, anybody who's done these things before. And I love the way verse 4 ties in with verse 1, because if verse 1 is saying to Oliver, you know what, you're going to need some help. Take John. Verse 4 is saying, hey, John, you're going to need some help. Take Oliver. You see how, it, how mutually beneficial these companionships are meant to be? I lift you and you lift me and both of us rise together. That's how marriages are supposed to be. It's how families are supposed to be. It's how presidencies and companionships are supposed to be. Verse 5, Also my servants who are abroad in the earth should send forth the accounts of their stewardships to the land of Zion. Because in verse 6, the land of Zion shall be a seat and a place to receive and do all these things. 
Zion is going to be a place of memory, of commemoration, of gathering not just the people of God, but gathering oh, the memories of the people of God, the history of the people of God. Bring it all into this one place. And don't just assume they're just going to send it all unasked, verse 5. You might need to go and ask them for it, verse 7. Nevertheless, let my servant John Whitmer travel many times from place to place and from church to church that he may the more easily obtain knowledge. And that still happens to this day. We don't just send forth missionaries to preach the gospel. We send forth missionaries to gather information in terms of the redemption of the dead. And so genealogical records the things that are filmed or uh, photographed and brought back to church headquarters, gathering them to Zion so that we can then save all of humanity. But even from a historical side, there are church historians that go out to record oral histories, that go out searching for information that might bless Zion by knowing more of its past. I mean, as a historian myself, I kind of geek out over this kind of stuff. And I'm so grateful that there are people like John Whitmer to this day who travel from place to place to gain as much knowledge as possible. Some of you out there, I mean, have been party to or witness of the important things. And so to help assist in this compilation of the history of all important things that are, that we observe or know concerning God's church, maybe it's time for you and I to step in a little bit more to verse 5. To send a copy of your, your mission journals. I mean, the church historical department is, is kind of open arms. We'd love to know more about everything that's taking place in the church. And that's becoming more and more localized, which is so amazing. So often we think of the gathering places like Kirtland and, and Independence and go, well, what happened there? But what's amazing as, uh, you know, we're going to need lots of additional bishops to be called. How about parents who are in stakes, plural, of Zion? We're going to have gathering places globally. And there is a history of the church in all of those places. Personally, I'm so grateful for the history of the church in Italy or in Denmark or in Scotland or in Wales, where my ancestors come from. I'm amazed by the history of the church in Puerto Rico because I came to love that place on my mission and I wanted to understand the important things that others observed and knew concerning the history of the church there. Wherever you happen to be, uh, this global audience of gathered saints, you've seen important things and you can send forth accounts of this so that the history of the church in your area is known. Oh, there's a lot of history yet to be written. But while you're at it also, verse 8, while you're out obtaining more knowledge on these travels, don't just receive. Make sure you give also. Preaching and expounding, writing, copying, selecting, obtaining all things which shall be for the good of the church. And especially, next phrase, for the rising generations that shall grow up on the land of Zion to possess it from generation to generation forever and ever. Amen. Section 68 ended with a concern about the rising generation. Children in Zion growing, out, uh, growing up without intentional parents. Parents more worried about the activity of teaching rather than the outcome of understanding. Or even worse, idle in their parenting out of greed or laziness. No, the rising generation deserves better than that. And it's amazing verse 8 hints that our history can be a, a, an important part of raising that rising generation with an understanding of who they are. 
knowing their origin. Why do you think the Bible starts with Genesis? This is where we're from. Uh, we, I don't know if there's a church on earth that knows or studies its history better than members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And especially among the youth, where we dress them up in pioneer garb and we send them out and, and, and put them on a stake trek that we celebrate and commemorate and that we teach the history of the church. And hopefully that's not just, again, in the, in the headquarters, centers. It's all these offshoots and all these branches and, and where the church came into your family line. Do they understand those stories? And where the church grew in their particular part of the world, do they understand those ones too? By knowing our origin, we know our identity. We know our destiny. We know our responsibility. And the rising generation needs all of that from generation to generation, forever and ever. As President Hinckley once said, don't be a weak link in the chain of your generations. And personally, knowing some of the strength of the links that went before me, pressure's on. And it's a good pressure. I want to live up to it. So Oliver and John go and do. And they went and did. In fact, at the conference where this was revealed, Joseph Smith expressed his desire that, quote, our brothers Oliver Cowdery and John Whitmer and the sacred writings which they have entrusted to them to carry to Zion be dedicated to the Lord by the prayer of faith. I love that Joseph is, well, I want to dedicate this material, uh, the, the, the scriptures, consecrate them to the Lord. But while we're at it, you know, let's set apart the missionary, so to speak. Let's dedicate Oliver and John for this assignment as well dedicated to the Lord by the prayer of faith. Now, one last revelation for this week, section 70, which is still part of this same context uh, as Oliver and John are sent down with the revelations and W.W. W. Phelps will be there waiting for you to begin publishing. And as we're getting a hint from section 69, there's a whole lot of other things that are gonna need to be published, not just the Book of Commandments, but the history of the church. We want people to know where they're from and where they're going from here. And so they form what they call the literary firm made up of church members, who, many of whom have some literary gifts. You'll get a, like I said, Oliver Cowdery and John Whitmer are good at this. W.W. W. Phelps is good at this. Sidney Rigdon's good at this. There's quite a few. And they'll, they'll, they'll be able to offer their gifts to the Lord to help with the literary kinds of things of the church. What do we do with God's Word? And this is going to become part of their stewardship. Now, often we think of stewardships as, well, you're the blacksmith, so you need a blacksmith shop, or you're a farmer, so here's the farm for you. Well, what about those who, whose stewardship, I mean, there are, there are people who, who work in the mind more than they work uh, with their hands. And the kingdom of God needs both of those. And so there are stewardships in temporal things and stewardships in spiritual things, all of which is required for, uh, essential for the Lord. But section 70 is a revelation along those lines for this, this literary firm. He begins it by saying, Behold and hearken, O ye inhabitants of Zion, and all ye people of my church who are afar off. So this is church members everywhere. I need you to know about this. Hear the word of the Lord, which I give unto my servants Joseph Smith Jr., and also unto my servant Martin Harris, and also unto my servant Oliver Cowdery, and also unto my servant John Whitmer, and also unto my servant Sidney Rigdon, and also unto my servant William W. Phelps, by the way of commandment unto them. So there's a lot of servants, and I love that he I was, sounded repetitious for us, but I, this, I want to reconfirm that every one of these individuals is one of my servants. I know them individually. I call them individually. Uh, they, they are servants of mine, but I want the whole church to know this about them. They are being given responsibility, and I need you all to be aware. 
So here's my commandment to them. Verse 2, I give unto them a commandment, wherefore hearken and hear, for thus saith the Lord unto them. I, the Lord, have appointed them and ordained them to be stewards over the revelations and commandments which I have given unto them, and which I shall hereafter give unto them. And verse 4, an account of this stewardship will I require of them in the day of judgment. Now there's some very specific aspects of that that refer to them in that immediate circumstance that we'll see in verse uh, 5 and 6. But broaden this. Again, if canonicity means traditional use, well, how does this apply to us since I'm not Joseph or Martin or Oliver or any of the above? But I still consider myself one of the Lord's servants. And if he wants all of us to know about these commandments for them, maybe it's because it's also a commandment that applies to me. And I would suggest that with language in verse 3, like stewards over the revelations. I love that statement. Do I consider myself a steward over the revelations that God has given me? Do, do I sense that there are strings attached and the strings all go upward? That these words are meant to attach me to heaven, but there's accountability there. There's responsibility. There's stewardship. Others have consecrated so much to give me God's word. Do I consecrate my time to receive them? Do, in fact, do I receive them as a stewardship? Since stewardship means they still belong to somebody else, but I'm responsible for them. But well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want you to say that to me. I hope that you will. Regarding even this scriptural stewardship. In fact, verse 4, an account of this stewardship will I require on the day of judgment. Now, it's going to be required of these men. Did you publish them? Did you print them? Did you do all you could to magnify your calling and make sure that the literary aspects of the kingdom of God were there to bless the rising generation, generation after generation? Well, I think, they're, I think they came out, came out okay on that. But what about you and me? You see, if an account of this stewardship will be required of me, then prepare yourself to someday face the Lord and to answer this question. What have you done with my words? Do you remember in 3 Nephi when Jesus comes and he's quoting all this Old Testament scripture and things, but at one point he asks Nephi, hey, can I see your scriptures? I mean, you guys have been keeping plates all these years. Uh, can, can I take a look? And I just picture Nephi handing them over and just watching the Lord look at his scriptures and, you know, turning pages and things and, and at, at, you know, the point where Jesus says to him, hey, Nephi, didn't, the, uh, didn't uh, Samuel the Lamanite prophesy of many other saints rising at my resurrection? He's like, oh yeah, he's told he did. And, and it happened. And I was like, it was a rhetorical question. Um, why wasn't it written down? And that's when Nephi scrambles, like, oh, sorry, we'll do that. And he go, goes back and, and puts it all in there. But I, I do wonder and sometimes worry, what will it be like if the Lord were to come to me and say, uh, Jared, can I see your scriptures? Mm, and I hand them over. And my hope would be, as he turns page after page, that he would see some evidence of their use. I wonder what it would be like if he's like, hey, how come you didn't mark this? That's one of my favorite things I ever said. <laughs> but, but seriously, it's, is there any evidence that we have treasured the word that he's given us? Because we will have an accounting at some day for our scriptural stewardship. Have we been consistent? I mean, speaking of toothbrushing, there is an accounting every time I go to the dentist and there's a six-month cleaning. And they're like, 
Have you been brushing? Have you been flossing? In fact, whenever they ask about flossing, because I hate flossing, I'm sorry. Uh, but whenever they ask about flossing, I always, I'm tempted to go, that's really personal. Well, how about you? Do you, read, do you read your scriptures every day? I, I've been so tempted to ask dentists that over the years. I'll floss every day when you study your scriptures every day. I do brush every day, both literally and symbolically. And what about oranges? Can you smell the citrus on my fingers from having juiced the scriptures with everything I've got? Oh, I hope so. That's part of my scriptural stewardship. And I take this one personally, too, as a teacher of scripture. In verse 5, if it's our business to manage the scriptures and the concerns of the scriptures and the benefits of the scriptures. Part of this traditional use of the canon is preparing each new rising generation to understand the Word of God and its relevance and application in their day. So we're managing these things. How do I manage the scriptures? Both its concerns and its benefits. Now this goes beyond what, what, what they literally had to do of, you know, get the printer and the typesetting and, and the, the paper and the binding and all that stuff. Yeah, that's concerns, okay? Manage all of that. And the benefits. I mean, you're going to sell this to members of the church. The church cannot afford just to give everything. People have to consecrate. But then as they go and are able to purchase a copy of the Book of Commandments for themselves, hopefully with enough to defray the, the cost, the expense of purchasing, but also to help the literary firms survive since that's it's their stewardship i mean people that are involved in spiritual things just still have to eat as much as those who are involved in temporal things and so the benefits that are up again you can take this in a very literal way which we will in the next few verses but for us in the 21st century especially those that are teaching the scriptures at church or teaching the scriptures to your children to help them understand how are we managing that on the one hand, do we help them with their concerns? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Or why would he say it this way? Or I just don't understand what the heck's going on. Okay, your concerns. And there are concerns that can be raised from Scripture. So let's help manage that. And secondly, their benefits. Do we help the rising generation know what they're missing when they don't feast upon the words of Christ? And do we help them know how to get there? I feel that that stewardship keenly. And I'm trying to manage that as best as I can. Imperfectly, admittedly, but I'm trying my best. So was the original literary firm. In verse 6, back to the literal on the literary, Wherefore a commandment I give unto them, that they shall not give these things unto the church, neither unto the world. Now that's confusing until you read verse 7. Nevertheless, inasmuch as they receive more than is needful for their necessities and their wants, it shall be given unto my storehouse. So now we're back to, again, the literal part of the literary firm and, and the managing the concerns and the benefits, the literal monetary benefits of the Book of Commandments was, okay, people are going to purchase this and there will be some money coming in. And what do you do with that? In verse 6, you don't give it to the church or to the world. I mean, give the scriptures to the church and to the world, definitely. But if there is any profit from their publication then that's not just going to go to general ecclesiastical or definitely not secular kind of interests. Instead, what do you do with it? Verse 7, anything more than is needful for their necessities and wants. It's like, oh, yeah, this really is their stewardship. And just like somebody whose stewardship was a farm and they're raising crops so they can eat and feed their family, 
Well, anything beyond your necessities, your needs and wants, then, then of course that should go back in the storehouse because then it can bless other people with there's more stewardships to give other people that will be coming flocking to Zion, right? So same thing here. The income that will come from this, of course it's got to offset the printing costs, but that would help feed the families of the literary firm since they're doing literary things. You can't eat a printing press. You don't drink printer's ink. But you can convert those things into eatable, drinkable kinds of things. But remember, anything beyond it, that's given to the storehouse just like everybody else. Being engaged in this, this spiritual labor isn't meant to impoverish you on the one hand, but it's not meant to enrich you on the other. It will provide you with that which is sufficient for your needs. But anything beyond that must be put into the storehouse, just like everybody else does with their extra crops that they just can't eat and it'll go bad. You see, money won't go bad. And so that's why we're sometimes tempted to just lay it up for ourselves and keep on using it later. No, it needs to go to the storehouse. You see verse 8, more generally speaking, the benefits shall be consecrated unto the inhabitants of Zion and unto their generations, inasmuch as they become heirs according to the laws of the kingdom. This is for everybody, not just for you. So verse 9, Behold, this is what the Lord requires of every man in his stewardship, even as I, the Lord, have appointed or shall hereafter appoint unto any man. So he's going to talk some, some overarching principles when it comes to consecration in general. And the literary firm is just one example of, of a consecration and stewardship. Here's the law overall. Or as he said in 9, this is what the Lord requires. 10. Behold, none are exempt from this law who belong to the church of the living God. And the law he's referring to is the law of consecration and the law of stewardship. Those two go hand in hand. No, no, none are off the hook. None are exempt from it. Verse 11. Not the bishop not the agent who keepeth the Lord's storehouse, not anyone who is appointed in a stewardship over temporal things. The law applies to everybody, including also, verse 12, he who is appointed to administer spiritual things. The same is worthy of his hire, even as those who are appointed to a stewardship to administer in temporal things. You see what he's trying to do? Again, Zion is one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteous, no poor among you. It's, it's a unity but there's a diversity as far as what people are consecrating and what stewardships they're receiving, what they can offer, and so on. What's interesting is we live in a day, we talk about blue collar and white collar. And unfortunately, we live in a day that looks up to white collar and tends to look down at blue collar. Well, in some ways, in the early 19th century, that was reversed. It was the common man and common sense. Uh, it was... I mean, even somebody as lofty and philosophical and, and erudite and academic as Thomas Jefferson was the great champion of the common man because he championed them. Yeah, he had a library in, in Monticello that became the Library of Congress. I mean, the guy was so smart. But he's the, also the one who said that, you know, farmers, that's really where the action is. And everybody should have their fingers in the dirt. There's just something moral that seems to come from, from tilling the ground. And you better believe the common man. I mean, that's the Jeffersonian Democrats in that, that time period. It was forget the Federalists that are, seem to be white collar. This is all about the Democratic Republicans that are decidedly blue collar. This was populism at its political finest. Well, in this time period, what would be interesting is for a blacksmith or a, a carpenter or a farmer 
people that again good honest blue collar production i'm building something i'm making something i'm growing something now that's where the respect comes in you what do you do what do you produce I mean, maybe the, the modern equivalent is when, especially you college students, my institute students, I sometimes will ask them in class, how many of you are humanities majors? And a couple people will have the guts to raise their hand. And I'll say, what's the question you always get once you admit that to someone? And they laugh. And they're like, oh, what are you going to do with that? And I always laugh. I go, yeah, I was a history major. And here I am teaching you know, religion. Uh, there's humanities at its finest. Um, what am I going to do with that? I always laugh and go, well, next time they ask you that, ask them back. Well, well, what are you, what are you studying? Oh, you know, business or, okay, well, if you're asking me, what am I going to do with this? Let me ask you, well, how are you going to live with that? <laughs> Where's the, the humanity without your humanities? Okay. Hopefully we see the value of some of the, 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 the production of beauty and of art and of music even just the production of knowledge, if your field is the life of the mind. I mean, it's interesting, blue collar, white collar, or humanities versus STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, all of them are part of human existence, which means God cares about it. And I do love what he's saying here to, at a time period where if you're not growing something or building something or producing something, you don't really have a leg to stand on, and the Lord is giving them that leg. Building the kingdom, I mean, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And if you labor in spiritual things, you deserve to be fed and clothed just like anyone else. The law of consecration and stewardship in both aspects, both receiving and giving, both uh, rights and rewards, along with responsibilities, applies across the board. And I love verse 13 in that context. Yea, even more abundantly. That's, he's referring to being worthy of his hire. Well, they're worthy of even greater abundance, which abundance is multiplied unto them through the manifestations of the Spirit. That's part of the abundance that you're blessed with when you consecrate. And honestly, I feel that in my, in my stewardship as a teacher of the gospel. This law applies to me too. And where much has been given when it comes to education and experience, uh, time to study, then much is required. And so here I am trying to share those things with others. And part of the hire that I receive, in fact, the, the kind I can never take to the bank and because it's in, it's in heavenly treasure, is the manifestation of the Spirit. And I am so grateful that that is is part of the reward God gives to each of us as we try to consecrate whatever we can to the building up of his kingdom. Remember he referred earlier to the riches of eternity? Oh, I'll take that any day. Uh, verse 14, Nevertheless, in your temporal things you shall be equal, and this not grudgingly, otherwise the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. So it's not just what you do, become equal in temporal things, Right? Not necessarily equivalent, since your circumstances are different, but equal. One heart, one mind. But don't do it grudgingly. There's the how. There's the adverb side of things. Remember the, the forgiveness in section 64. You ought to say, in your hearts. Well, here you ought to give in your hearts. It's the hearts I require, after all. So don't be grudging. Verse 15, Now this commandment I give unto my servants, for their benefit while they remain 
for a manifestation of my blessings upon their heads and for a reward of their diligence and for their security. Commandments are meant for all of that. Our benefit, our blessings, our reward, our security. I hope we feel that way about God's commandments. Verse 16, for food and for raiment, for an inheritance, for houses and for lands, in whatsoever circumstances I the Lord shall place them, and whithersoever I the Lord shall send them. So there's the spiritual blessings in 15. There will need to be temporal blessings in 16 as well. The Lord is trying to provide for both our spiritual and temporal needs. Verse 17, for they have been faithful over many things and have done well inasmuch as they have not sinned. I mean, the inasmuch there is like, yeah, they sin on occasion too. I, nobody's perfect, but I'm merciful. I'm trying to make them holy. Get, be patient with me as I'm patient with them. But as they've done their best and as they've repented, they have been faithful over many things. That's the same language as that parable of the stewards, the parable of, of the talents, we call it. But these stewards were given a stewardship and those that, that acted faithfully in them got that praise. They were faithful over many things. And what's the Lord say to them? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. This literary firm deserves similar commendation. And then his final verse here, Behold, I the Lord am merciful, important reminder, inasmuch as I've sinned, and will bless them. He's been trying to do that all along. And then my favorite line, And they shall enter into the joy of these things. Even so, amen. Now what did he mean by entering into the joy of these things? What were these things? These things were the scriptures. That's... I mean, with the exception of section 68, everything else we've studied today, 67, 69, 70, has been the literary firm, basically. It's what do we do with God's Word? And the conference has come together to, to ponder and pray about this. According to the minutes of that conference, it said that it was voted that Joseph Smith Jr. should be appointed to dedicate and consecrate these brethren and the sacred writings and all they have entrusted to their care to the Lord. And it was done accordingly. The conference also voted that these revelations should be prized by the conference to be worth to the church the riches of the whole earth. The saints are starting to get it. They're starting to see just what God has placed before them. Remember we saw at the end of section 67? Someday in my own two time, you'll see and know just what I've appointed unto you through my servant Joseph Smith. It's like, ah, oh, this is scripture. This is the word of God presented to you again in this dispensation of the fullness of times. Do you have any idea what's before you? Do you recognize this as greater than, of greater worth than the riches of the world? Because once you figure that out, once you see that, then this promise comes. You shall enter into the joy of these things. As a teacher of scripture for the last, what, 22 years, one of my greatest joys as a teacher is watching students enter into the joy of these things. When brushing their teeth is no longer a chore, but something they look forward to every day. When squeezing the orange is something that they just can't wait to do. Because there is more to be found here. Infinitely more. I testify of God's word I testify of his scriptures, and I testify personally of the joy of these things. 
my prayer for each of you, my wonderful unshaken friends, is that as you continue to wrestle with God's Word, as you continue to increase your consistency and your intensity when it comes to Scripture study, that you too will enter into the joy of these things.